Welcome to the CDC Podcast, episode 31, the end of year extravaganza 2015 edition. With me this time is senior curator of Critical Distance and now the news editor of ZAM, Chris Ligman. Whoa, hi, are we still doing this? Editor-in-chief of 5 Out of 10 Magazine and the Systems Administrator and Advisory Board Member of Critical Distance, Alan Williamson. Hello! And newcomer to the podcast, editor and freelance writer, as well as a weekly contributor to Critical Distance, Riley McLeod. Hey! Wow, that was so short. Hey! (laughs) (laughs) It sounds creepy. (laughs) At least least you're here. here. Hey, video games, what's up? Uh, and we're all in a good mood for once, so let's not waste our time. Well, I'd say I'm in less of a bad mood than before. I don't I'll know if take I what I can get. Yeah, there were some hardware issues, listeners, before we started this call. But uh, more importantly, I guess this is like, oh, it's my last year doing this podcast as senior curator. Uh, yeah, phase. but not your last. Not yeah, but next, but next year you'll be doing it with a different role. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Oh man. I would like to just retire gracefully like Ben at some point. <laughs> I think I dragged him on once even after he retired. Well, yes, but, I mean, he went and got a Ph.D., and here I am over here just like, well, I guess I'm now the critical distance quartermaster or CFO or something like that. None of us have Ph.D.s, mm, unless someone's no. holding out. I have two no. master's degrees. It's close. Jesus. Oh, two? Two? Though. Did you not master <laughs> it sufficiently the first time? I made, <laughs> I made bad choices. I think I should be allowed to get one more and then just combine them into a PhD. Agreed. I was actually asked, Agreed. do I want to get a master's? And no. I looked at what I learned for my bachelor's and I looked at how much it cost and I thought it wasn't worth it the first no, time. No, it's not. <laughs> it's a lot of money. It sounds nice, though. Yeah. Anyway, we should probably get started. We have a nice little outline here, so hopefully we don't get too bogged down in every which way. And unlike previous years, we're not doing this chronologically because, as Chris so helpfully pointed out after our massive seven-hour recording a few years ago, that takes too long. We just cherry-picked some of the most important or most relevant or just somehow some of the biggest stories that we feel basically sum up the year in some to some degree or manner. And we're going to start with major releases and their think piece storms. Man, I, I didn't know we were just going to like read aloud everything I, that I put I in here. Because I put <laughs> I, some I, snarky shit into this outline, and I don't know if I want to compromise my position this way. Well, you have until we get there to edit it. Yeah. Well, dang. Well, I'll watch you. I'm happy to compromise my position. I have. I don't care. <laughs> Go to the highest bidder. Yeah, we're going to start with The Witcher 3. All right. So Witcher 3, the latest of the Witcher series of their not Bioware games yet successful somehow RPGs by CD Projekt Red, a Polish studio. Their company does not begin with a B. Huh. Hmm? Bioware Bethesda Blizzard. So it doesn't. That is... Uh, There's other game companies apart from those three. <laughs> ones that do Western RPGs? No, no, no. Mm-hmm. Ever since Black Isle, you know, we've had like this sort of like this accord, this uh, treaty with Is that why Bungie did a kind of RPG elements? Because they felt they like, were uh, allowed. Yeah. They were grandfathered in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, so Witcher 3 is a game that is based loosely on Slavic folklore and is set in some version fantasy of, you know, fantasy version of like, uh, you know, Mid, like, not quite Western, but not quite. Poland is in a weird place. 
in Europe. But anyway, fantasy Poland. And there are arguments back and forth whether it should have uh, more people of color among its cast, because currently the number of people of color in The Witcher 3 is zero, and this was an issue for several critics. The thing is, it actually went back and forth in debate, and only about half of it was relevant to the issue. As I, as I recall, because you had one Polish person pointing out that demographically the game makes a lot of sense, and then, you, of course, you had... What was it? Uh, it's that Tumblr blog, uh, Medieval People of Color. Oh, yeah. I don't remember what it specifically is called. And he brings out people traveled all over Europe since before Rome. I think the editor of Medieval POC is a woman, but regardless, no, it's it's very true. And like even within like the lore of Witcher 3's fiction, which is something that Tariq Musa pointed out in his Polygon piece, like there is world building within the Witcher series itself that, you know, refers to these other cultures that are meant to be analogs for the Middle East and whatever else. So it's like the groundwork has been laid for those kinds of characters. CD Projekt Red just didn't see fit to include them in any way. And honestly, this critique to me becomes a lot more relevant the larger your game and more epic scale your game becomes. Because mm. if it was like one of those close-quarter RPGs about a single village lost in the middle of nowhere, it's more understandable because you can create a myth of it losing contact and it being so insular. But the moment The Witcher 3 is, is practically a continent. I've seen that map. It scares me away from playing it. Yeah. And I, I mean, I guess if you compare it to something like Skyrim, the Elder Scrolls games have always quite a, had quite a lot of you know, diversity and race and things. And uh, even though Skyrim takes parts, uh, part in the, the sort of Nord zone in the frozen waste, which isn't too dissimilar from the world of something like The Witcher, it's similar mythology. You know, there's still a lot of other races and species and characters and colors in the area of Skyrim. Right, and, and those representations aren't you know, necessarily free from legitimate criticism, but it's you know, arguably better than erasure, I would say. I just remember this like just be a conversation that went in circles. Yeah, I think surely, surely not. <laughs> not on not on the internet. Yeah. Well, I mean, like even today, like Tariq Musa can't go online without getting just harassed constantly by just mobs and mobs of people who believe that he's, you know, some sort of figurehead of, like, the SJW cabal or something like that, because he did an opinion piece on Polygon. And wasn't this, like, his first time writing about video games, because he usually writes, like, real news yeah. and adventures for places? <laughs> no, he wrote for, he wrote for 5 out of 10 in okay. 2014, oh. so, no. Because I... As I recall, he he says, I've written about incest, I've written about the NRA, I've written about extra, violent extremists, and it's like he never got the reaction until he wrote about video games. Uh, I mean, yeah, to me, like, the conversation around it felt notable, right? This idea that you could criticize the game for being all white people and everybody kind of loses their minds is, like, to make us all sort of look... I don't want to say it makes us all look worse, but it's just like, uh... But I, I think that's sort of endemic to games in a lot of ways, right? Like, you can point out this flaw, and then everybody just kind of loses their minds, you know what I mean? I, I actually am sort of glad that we're at the losing their shit period of this discourse. Not because it's pleasant or anything like that, although there are moments of schadenfreude, but more that, you know, maybe a couple decades ago, 
that conversation really would have gone nowhere. It would have just gone, well, it's video games, and then we would mm. move on. Whereas now it's like, well, no, actually, we're going to insist upon this point, and we're not going to go away just because you're having a meltdown. Mm. Which dovetails into some of the things that we'll be talking about later in this section, I guess. And pretty much a theme of the year as a whole. Eh, I guess so. <laughs> People having meltdowns? <laughs> Unlike previous years on the internet? or <laughs> No, it wasn't quite what I was going yeah. for, but yeah, sure. Oh, and Because right. uh, related, you, we have Battlefield Hardlined and its PR problem. Mm. Basically, the PR problem being its, existence, mm. its chosen existence at this point in time. Mm. Uh, here's a good uh, fun fact that ties us to the previous piece before we get into it, is that um, if you read the first comment on the Battlefield Hardline review, uh, no, Alan, no. Eric, who wrote the Polygon thing piece uh, about The Witcher. Uh, so there you go. I didn't even catch that. Yeah. Well, it, it's a top-rated comment. No, I mean, I don't under... I didn't hear what you said. Okay, sorry. So, um, Tarek Musa that wrote the Witcher 3 um, and Race Problem opinion piece for Polygon, he's got the, the first kind of top-rated comment on Austin Walker's Battlefield Hardline review as well. Oh, nice. That all ties nicely. It flows from... from yeah. So, yeah, when, you know, Giant Bomb is kind of outshining you in your comment section, that's... You know, well, it's paste, it's paste in this case. Yeah. Oh, paste. Well, yes, that's, that's right. I Remember now that Austin did not move till Giant Bomb until later this year. Uh, congratulations again, Austin. So, yeah, uh, yeah so... I just take a moment feel... to officially register that I, 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 Austin's a genius. I'm just going to say that on the podcast. Can we just, like, yeah, just devote just these two hours to swooning over just Austin Walker? Uh, yeah, it's our 2014 blogger of the year. <laughs> well, he yep. did. He's I mean, I like to preen and say that, you know, we are responsible for so many people... Getting awesome jobs in oh. this community, but uh, I mean, uh, I mean, we have we have a few, but uh, we have a fifty. We have at least a fifty percent success rate. I mean, I would say that all of the writers that we featured as blogger of the year have been pretty notable across the industry. Whether they're like still active is, in some cases, a matter of personal choice. I mean, for instance, like Kate Cox, she left Kotaku, but she has a family now, so. Hmm. You know, it's not as though she's just like gone and you know languished in obscurity. She's over at the consumerist and is living a perfectly satisfying life. She was on Jeopardy. She pissed off Christie, oh, Governor was? Christie, on Jeopardy a few months oh, ago. Cool. <laughs> now I have to look this up after after this is over. So yes, one of our bloggers of the year ended up on Jeopardy. Thank you very much. How neat. So, yeah, so getting back to the subject of Battlefield Hardline, I don't know who it was, but someone said it's just, like, you can't win if you're the PR person for a game like Battlefield Hardline, because it seemed like every single time they did some, like, major PR reveal for this game, or even when it was about to release, like, there was something horrible going on in the news with police brutality again. Yeah. So, like, the timing could not have been worse in every one of those I cases. I feel so sorry for their for their community manager, because whoever that person is, they have no say over this, and he's, they're just looking at the news and it's not oh, crap. Because they know they someone there had to know who wasn't in charge what was going to happen. Yeah. Because the like the problem has always been there, but it's been like has this big neon spotlight put on it in this in the last year or two. And it isn't going away. 
And then they decide to release this, and they don't really have a choice because it was probably in production long before everything just blew up in the media. But at the same time... I mean, what it's talking about, I mean, all of that was sort of like boiling under the surface well before Ferguson, right? I mean, it's not as though Battlefield Hardline was like in development and then suddenly police everywhere became racist. You know, it's... I mean, we, we, we are pretty much aware of, like, the increased militarization of police as a thing that has been happening basically since, like, the early 2000s, right? Yeah. Uh, probably earlier than that. Boy, it's since the 80s. It's thanks to the drug war. Oh, yeah, you're right. I was thinking mainly, like, the, the selling off of uh, Iraq the war. Hardware. Yeah. The hardware was, like, 2001 forward, but... But the actual, like, training, because a lot of it has been put, like, Blackwater, a big contract of theirs was the Chicago Police Department before they were they were sent off to Iraq. They were training the police on how to deal with suspects. Um, okay, so let's pretend that not all of, our, all of our listeners don't live in America. Um, oh. that, um, oh. and we're not used to a game about um, super cops. Uh, shooting loads of criminals to death might not necessarily make sense. Um, so, so the first question is, is this game Battlefield 4, Cops and Robbers? Why? So who are the bad guys? If the good guys are these cops, who are the bad guys in Hardline? That's actually a big problem that Austin kind of brings up. Is like everyone but the player character, kind of. Okay. Except then the player character then decides to use the corruption to his own ends at the very end. So. Uh, okay, because what I mean is like if you're if you're watching something like uh, the what I assume to be a, a documentary movie about uh, the police in America, Michael Bay's Bad Boys. Um, you know, in, in, that, in that movie, the, uh, I can I already say it with a straight face. Um, in that movie, the, the villains are these drug dealers and corrupt cops and stuff. And you can understand needing to, to gun them down. But uh, what I, what I think is interesting about Battlefield Hardline is did nobody think this would be a shit idea, Ferguson or no Ferguson? Did nobody think, hold on a minute, um, maybe, maybe this isn't such a good idea. I remember the E3 reveal, which I believe was last year, is that they showed off like a, a level where the police had to stop this these criminals from from stealing an armored truck. And the way they did it was they eventually blew up the top of a building by sending a helicopter that the bad guys had com- commandeered and sent it into a skyscraper, blowing it up and collapsing it. At which point, I remember commenting, okay, I'm pretty sure that was worth more than whatever was in the armored car. <laughs> but that was... And the game viewed this as a victory. And the thing is, in America right now, it may be a little, that may be the over-top example, but the same ethos goes through it that whatever the police do, as long as they get the quote-unquote bad guy, it is considered a victory. And while I'm sure if they actually did take out a skyscraper, there might be issues with that, but on the lower scale of things that we have a, the media is highlighting so much, yeah, that's kind of what's ha- that's kind of the mentality. Okay, I mean, I guess where I was getting at was obviously you've got the battlefield games, like the mainline ones, and they're about you know various armies fighting in probably a Middle Eastern country, and that kind of makes sense. You know, that happens. We're familiar with that. Then you've got Star Wars Battlefront. You've seen the Star Wars movies. A lot of the scenarios in that are a facsimile of what happens in those movies. That's okay. That's a, a war in the a long, long time ago, right? Yeah. I I think this is just a bad concept for a video game. 
because well, it is a competitive multiplayer shooter. I don't see how they were ever going to get any of the nuance that they could probably need to include in order to make this, you know, not just a... But it's also uh, not something that's unique to EA, like, at all. Like, I remember during the big E3 wall-to-wall coverage for Watch Dogs, like, they harped very heavily on uh, the recent leaks with regards to, like, the secret, like, surveillance programs here in the United States. Mm, and they were using okay. that as sort of, like, the touching-off point for their cool cyberpunk adventure where you go and hack people's, you know, devices and steal their money and stuff like that. So, I mean, I don't feel that taste is really a concept when you're at this level of, of game development marketing. Mm, but Watch Dogs is kind of science fiction-y, and it's not in that well, much I mean, more so than... I mean, so is Battlefield Hardline in a very, like, you know, threadbare way, in the same way that Call of Duty has gone, like, whatever, 10 years in the future or something like yeah. that in order to skirt around any, like, immediate political issues. That's a very common thing in FPSs now. What's really sad, though, is that Call of Duty is at least doing the thematic thing, even if they're, like, not getting actual material right in, in like, dealing with the issues they decide to, or at least the good ones do. Like, Ghosts was absolutely terrible, but for everything I've read about uh, Advanced Warfighter, it actually dealt with what it did. Maybe not extremely deep, but it decided to actually, okay, this is our theme, let's actually do something with it. Battlefield Hardline and Watch Dogs, which is a game I still want to chuck into a fire, decide it's it's headline grabbers. That's what it is. Its theme is to headline grabbers, and the game ignores it completely. It does nothing with it. It is just a bland video game that has this super dichotomous theme that's gonna that you need to deal with because it's it's just dynamite no matter what and you know it says you know what chuck it out the window it doesn't matter also just on the point alan yes you live in the uk i do you probably have no concept of the police having this type of equipment um well if you Okay, so I grew up in Northern Ireland and it was slightly different there because the police um, were decommissioned. They had plastic bullet launchers, which are, it actually looks more like a bazooka, and a plastic baton round is about the size of a wine bottle. I remember whenever I moved to Scotland, I saw this um, Ford Focus in police colours, you know, out in the main street, and I said, what's that? And somebody said, "Uh, that's a police car. I said, what? I say, that's not a police car. What do you mean? I said, well, where's all the armor plating to to stop the the petrol bombs from uh, bouncing off the car? (laughs) Because in Northern Ireland, the police car is an armored Land Rover. Um, And they they used to have like 10, 15 feet high security walls and stuff around the police stations. But um, it's becoming, the police in Britain are becoming a little more militarized. If you go to the House of Commons, they're all armed with MP5s. So it's not not a completely... um, it's not it's not as demilitarized. It's not the same as if you go to somewhere like um, Germany. That was in Frankfurt. All the police had guns. So, yeah, it depends where you go. But in, I think in continental Europe, a lot of the police are armed, uh, but not, not so, so much. So what you're Britain. saying is that Britain is more like hot fuzz than any of us Americans expected. Well, have you ever heard that Bill Hicks sketch where he's in Oxford? He talks about the, the, hooligan, the hooligans on the rampage uh, compared to, like, the Crips and Bloods. Uh, yeah, that's that's what Britain's like. It's like people kicking over a hooligan. Some hooligans kicked over a bin in Oxford last night. That's like <laughs> a state of crime here. It's, it's something I was actually I was having a chat with someone about um, the and um, 
Um, were you were you talking about the escapists and prison architects and British yeah. games? Is that it? And British yeah. approaches to that kind of crime, like bit like Fable, where um, yeah, you, you you kick in the door and the police officer goes, "Hi," and then he like he just tells you <laughs> off and like, "John, pay a fine." You mean no? <laughs> and he can just run away. Um, it's not quite like that, but yeah, I, I, I see where you're coming from. I think um, yeah, it, it's a very different situation to America. So, so that was that was question one. Question two was. Obviously, Eric's going to put the paste review of Hardline into the show notes. But what was the controversy about this? Was was it was it just that this was a bad time for this game to come out, or were there negative reactions to Austin's review? I don't know that there were negative reactions to Austin's reviews, but it's not just a bad time. It's it's a cultural mind space of our country at the moment, and that the idea that this game is celebratory because it's oh uh, what. Is it Mark Kermode who's like your the film critic that you yep he's the you outsource he, to the rest, he's the best outsource to the rest of the world yeah and he had this great way of explaining Michael Bay movies where it's like it's all sex it's all sex it's big robots and he he has this whole bit explaining Michael Bay and that's pretty much what this game does it's like police have machine guns they can blow up helicopters amazing and it's this idea. And it's that promotion, it's that uh, propaganda, if you will, to, to how things should be done. It's like, and it gave like a token counter argument where you could actually arrest the suspects mm. rather than just shooting them down, mm-hmm. which was a, which I believe was a slightly harder. It gave you more experience points, but it was slightly harder and was almost completely ignored by all promotional materials. Is that European mode that was called? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we were talking recently about uh, content getting caught, uh, cut out of like international releases of games, right? And how, for example, you can't detonate a nuclear warhead in the Japanese version of Fallout 3. So now I'm thinking, mm-hmm. what if like overseas versions of Battlefield Hardline don't allow you to kill suspects? Like you have to just go through the entire bureaucracy of arresting them and filling out all the paperwork uh, and going to trial with them. It's like like the original Someone Mad Max or something. Someone made that joke where where the first person you shoot and then you have to like, and then the game entire changes to like a spreadsheet manager (laughs) before you're allowed back to back outside. And you have to go to therapy where it changed to like a Kentucky route zero talkathon. It sounds a bit like L.A. Noir. (laughs) You have to drive at a realistic 1940s speed to the crime scene. Walk around. Incorrect. You make your you make your partner drive to the 1940s crime scene. What? You just tell him I want to review the notes. You drive there. What? I didn't know you could do that. Twenty hours to complete that game. Oh well. I thought you knew. No. Speaking of long, slow wait times enforced upon the player, we can talk about the beginner's guide. <laughs> nice, nice uh, segue. Oh yes, uh, I, di- I didn't put a link here in our little outline because I didn't know which one to use. Mm. That was just an explosion of criticism. I, mean, I, I sort of threw it down, but uh, I'm hoping to collect a lot of it and then also the stuff from Stanley Parable at some point because you know I feel like the beginner's guide was like specifically tailored to piss off critics. Yeah. And I mentioned this to Davey Reed, and he's like, no, 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 oh, come on, man. Like, I didn't believe that, and I actually don't know, like, where, like, some of the interpretations have come from, because I, like, I never once had, like, an emotional reaction to it, 
probably because I've, I've done too many works like this in other medium. I've read books, I've seen movies and documentaries that do the same sort of thing. So I was just going, yep, that's a pretty neat video game version of it. I, I felt that way the first time I played it. I was kind of like, eh, this feels like juvenile and navel-gazy. And then I, I played it again to write a piece about it, and I was like, my stomach fell out. You know, I was just like, oh, it's so emotional, um, which, is, which is really interesting. I was surprised to be really affected by it on a second viewing. Yeah. I think we should probably just, like, give a quick overview. It... It, the Beginner's Guide, for those who haven't played it, I'm not going to spoil anything. We should also Purport, add right at the beginning that oh. it's the follow-up to The Stanley Parable by Davy Reedon. Is it a follow-up? Uh, well, it's not a follow-up, it's just the next game the in next the guy's game. gameography. Yes. And it's, but it at purports, least some of it is like based upon his experiences while, like, like after Stanley Parable was out and all the people who were trying to psychoanalyze him as a person based on the content of that game. So... I would say, in some respects, it is a follow-up. But anyway, go on. It's it's basically Davy Reedon and the fictional, and I'm going to enforce this because, despite what some people think, <laughs> it is fictional Coda. What if it's real? <laughs> but the thing is that just that that just to me that reaction that people thought he had actually taken someone else's work and repurposed it, never it in this way. To me, yeah. It never occurred to me either because it was like, yeah, I've seen this done before, but it just kind of shows to the success of it. It's kind of like exit through the gift shop or mm. in that way. It's like you don't know if it's real or fake, and it just speaks to the the construction of it that, that it was done so well. But no, it is it is fiction, and Coda is either a metaphor for his inner inner creative self or it's playing You're So Vain with some unknown unknown uh, indie developer. Well, hold on. Now we're going and interpreting the beginner's guide. <laughs> Which is the danger it warns us against. Exactly. But not, but not really. It, it, it warns us against a certain type of interpretation. Right. And that's why I never really got the whole, oh, my God, critics can't critique it because you're falling into its trap. No, it's it's very specific about what type of, interpretation it thinks is bullshit. No, I, I really saw the trap of the beginner's guide being exactly what's going on right now, where we just continuously go through like these loops and loops of, well, is it this or is it that, and not really arriving at any place productive with our interpretations. It's just like, well, it's like it's become it becomes meta at a point, right? It's like it's more mm. about us discussing the value of criticism as opposed to actually analyzing the work on its own merits. And uh, that's which is about the which is about the merits of criticizing work. So at that <laughs> some point, it's going to be you're going to end up being meta no matter well, what. Well, I, I think there are things that to to draw out of the beginner's guide that are quite aside from the whole is Coda a real person? Are we able hmm. to uh, interpret this without like in some way like violating someone's personal space or something like that? For instance, I still kind of get. Like my hackles raised when I refer, like I see Coda being referred to as he in you know critical articles about this game because it seems very clear to me that Coda is a trans woman who is being on top of misrepresented by Davy the character uh, misgendered as well and that's a thing that has shown up like in a few articles but on the whole it seems to just had kind of have been like written off like in favor of this other sort of high-minded critique. Or Brendan Keogh did a, a very nice piece recently about 
games and intentions beyond the idea of players. Like, players as being sort of like like the least ideal part of an ideal mechanized system and how the Beginner's Guide plays into that. So I feel like, I mean, there's like a lot of avenues here, and I feel like the whole, oh, is it morally correct for us to uh, engage with this game is like the least interesting thing to say about the Beginner's Guide. And it just and it becomes like this vicious downward spiral into navel gazing. To me, the beginner's guide is interesting only when you have because the thing is that's a, what you said that Coda in your mind is a trans woman. That's a perfectly viable lens to view all the information that we know about their relationship. At the same time, someone who doesn't wish to apply that lens is also equally correct because there isn't enough information to disavow it, but there's not enough information to confirm it. Mm. But it works. To me, that's why, and that's why it's so interesting. It's ambiguous enough that you're able to imply so many different lenses to pull out so many different meanings and so much more in-depth information. But it's always going to be a reflect. To some degree, a lens is always the reflection of the person who applies it, and that. And it's going to be, always going to be what you get out of the beginner's guide is always going to be more about what you think of games than it can be about Davy Rendon because we don't know who Davy Rendon is, but we know who we are. You're putting an extra N in his name. Am I? It's Reden possible. Reden or Reden. <laughs> N bonus. Uh, can I ask a question? Yes. Um, you just did. <laughs> can I, can uh-huh. I ask questions? All right. Uh-huh. Okay, so my second question is, should I play this if I really, really, really did not like the Stanley Parable? Because I thought it was two yeah. hours of smug, self-important onanism, and I really couldn't tolerate Stanley Parable 2, Stanley Harder. So is this more, is this more of the it's, same, or is it like... I mean, you Stanley can see Parable a sort of continuity parts, in yeah. style there, but I feel like... It's tone a very different, genre, it's, it's different. Tone and genre yeah. is very different. And then, like we've been talking about before, I feel like the emotional impact of the game is a lot different than what Stanley uh, tries to achieve. Yeah, okay. I, I don't know if I don't know if I would say that the game succeeds in everything it's trying to do, but I think it does have a really solid and earnest emotional core, and to me, raises really interesting issues about how we how we engage with artists' works and, and what they mean to us, and uh, which maybe dovetails nicely into into Undertale later. But also what we do with, I think, people we idolize in general. And I found it to be surprisingly earnest and emotional upon, like, repeated playthroughs, I guess. I think I said that already. Yeah, might give it a go. I can always return it within the, the Steam. Oh. Uh, <laughs> 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 How can we not mention that? <laughs> I'm going to let the next one to Chris because I believe Chris can explain it much better, the whole situation uh, much better than I can. Okay, well, in part because I bought you a copy of Undertale and you have not played it yet. I'm busy. I tried. Puff, puff. <laughs> I, was able, I was able to do all my things on a schedule. Hmm. Anyway, so, okay. So Undertale, speaking of earnest heartfelt games, is... And it's fun to... I feel it is a earnest, cute, funny game. It is not, you know, the best game that was ever made. It's not, I feel, as brilliant as a lot of people bring it out to be. I don't think it's harmful in many ways, though. I feel it's just a charming, cute game. 
that also has a very passionate fandom. And or at least a very organized fandom. It's passionate and organized. <laughs> with a lot of bots. Accounts, right? yeah. According to uh, the people on GameFAQs, it's, it's like just one person with a lot of sock puppets. Or women. It's like, it's women, so they're not real gamers right. or something like that. Right. So yes, so uh, Undertale was one of over 200, I think, games that were up for consideration in GameFAQs' like, best game ever poll that they run every year. And Undertale fans voted for their favorite game. And so it ended up crushing absolutely every other game in the poll, which upset some people who did not understand the appeal of a game like Undertale, who felt that it was a casual game, that uh, it, it wasn't on the same level or caliber as any of their games under consideration. And uh, this kind of like spiraled out into complex conspiracy theories. Like I mentioned, like sock puppets and fake uh, accounts that were like, you know, spamming the polls or something like that. Bots, the moderators, you know, verified that that was not the case, that these were all authentic votes. But that didn't really stop anyone's, you know... But that can't be true, because I don't believe it. <laughs> no, no. So, uh, you know, you just had some people uh, getting really, really emotional about the fact that a game that that wasn't their cup of tea was appealing to an awful lot of people that weren't them or any of their buddies. The idea that there are demographics out there that are in numbers enough to be significant was alarming, I guess, if you are in, in a certain bubble. And as a result, I believe there was someone on the GameFAQs forums who said, I will never forgive SJWs, which to me is incredibly hilarious because uh, right back when like the, the hashtag that shall not be named started last year, someone like made like a chrome filter that like replaced SJW with skeleton. Mm. So if you play Undertale... <laughs> you know that skeletons actually feature quite a lot in the game. So I'm just imagining someone going through these forums with everyone going, I will never forgive skeletons. <laughs> I will never forgive those skeletons for what they've done. Fantastic. <laughs> I've only been hearing what basically you and a few others have noted from this thing and post to Twitter. And one of the craziest things, I'm not going to quote here because I'm, I, I like for this to be a family-friendly show, Oh, sorry, but sorry. I had a place, just a place to swear with skeletons. Well, no, the thing is, <laughs> it wasn't a swear. It was a subject matter where apparently it's like all those people and those, and what was it, those goat people in, incest <laughs> lovers. It was like, and it was just like, hold on, hold on. And, and I, I, I latched on to the wrong thing completely. And it says, is it people who herd goats? Or is it a goat-human hybrid they're talking about? I was thinking goat-human hybrid. Just. <laughs> there are some goat people, as in goat-like people. Goat I have not heard anything with regards to there being some sort of like incestuous undertones for any of that. Um, it's just, I think that's what just someone was accusing the right, game of. Right, right. Well, I, mean, I was if, like, if, wait a minute. I guess if you're, if you're a satire and you're trying to get off with other satires, there's probably not that many of them, so incest seems more reasonable in that context. <laughs> I mean, if they're going to be talking about fans who are, you know, creating sometimes questionable fan works based on a, like a, on a franchise, I mean, yes, there's probably some really weird stuff that goes on in Undertale fan, and there's weird stuff that goes on in any fandom. Uh, yep, there's that and all the others that don't quite have the same sort of codification. 
uh, the idea that we can like judge a game based on its very vocal and perhaps at sometimes less than approachable fandom uh, is nonsensical. I mean, if we tried to do that, for example, for like a major AAA release, like like if we said, oh, well, I don't want to uh, talk about Call of Duty because it's a bunch of uh, 12-year-old boys that play that game, we would rightly be criticized as being a bunch of dismissive jerks, right? Uh, there are plenty of other reasons to hate Call of Duty. But but I mean, he, come well, on, this is I, game FAQs. You know, this is like, it's the worst site on the internet that's not called Twitter. It's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> like the, only, the only reason game FAQs exist is so you go on, don't look at anything, don't look at anything, just type the game you're looking for into the search box at the top, get the first FAQ from somebody with the real name that isn't like Cloud Strife 2162, just get your <laughs> FAQ, do a Command F, Find what you're looking for. Go. Get out of there. Do not look at the polls. Do not visit the message boards. Um, if you, I'm on the front page of Game FAQs right now, and the first, the most popular board topic is, who can't Bayonetta beat from this roster in a cannon fight? Um, who did you marry in Fire Emblem? And uh, Final Fantasy 15 Twitter asking for celebrity voice acting recommendations. Battlefront homing shots should never be a thing. Ever. <laughs> Metal Gear Solid Five. The ending is brilliant. Brackets. Spoilers. Close bracket. I mean, yeah, I we did the um, somebody made a I don't know, but a code for Tumblr that let you go through the best game ever poll, and um, it, it's amazing how many of those games are either Nintendo games or Square RPGs. And that's the problem with game FAQs. Um, nobody's going to go look for an FAQ for Burnout 3, right? You need one for RPGs, there's more in-depth games, and for whatever reason, all the Nintendo classics. And that's why people are probably so annoyed. I mean, I guess Undertale is a JRPG, but nobody's going to write a you know one and a half megs of playing text about it in the way they have for Final Fantasy VII. Uh, so, well, uh, I mean, actually... <laughs> actually... <laughs> first of all, let's not call it a JRPG, because... I mean, it is, yes, it's strongly inspired by a lot of JRPGs, but the developer himself is not Japanese. And then there are... Maker, isn't it? So it's a sort of Japanese-style role-playing game is what I was going for. Okay, okay, I'll accept that. Um, And then there's the other thing, like, it's actually a surprisingly deep game. Like, there are an awful lot of... like, And I don't mean that thematically. I mean that there is, like, a lot beneath the surface of what you play through the game that, like, there are entire characters that you can only read about if you, like, dive into the source code, for example. Hmm. Uh, this is a game that is sort of like, it assumes that you are going to try to decompile it and poke at every little nook and cranny of it. And there is actually un- a justifiable amount of, like, discussion and FAQs and walkthroughs and and that sort of thing for this game for that reason, because there is an awful lot to unpack there. And I think that's part of why it has such a broad appeal, apart from the fact that it's just cute and funny, but it's not a JRPG. Okay. Sorry. Just so long as we're very clear on that. I've got to, like, put these, like, like these signposts in the dirt. And that's why it'll never be as good as Final Fantasy VII. And, and stop voting for it. Stop it. Stop voting for it. Hush you. Anyway, I was anyone I actually salty that it like beat something like Final Fantasy VII? They were no, mostly... it was Ocarina of Time that yeah. everyone was like outraged about. I, to me, that's I, a, it's crap. I mean. Sort of like maybe just because they're listed in the same order on our outline. 
I think this question of its fandom and how its fandom influences the reception of the game does in some ways dovetail with like things the beginner's guide talks about, right? Though we're talking about like who has ownership over a piece of work that's important to us and what does that mean? And right, you can't judge Undertale and its fandom for behaving how they behave, but also like you can, right? Like it, it mm. the reading of it sort of becomes part of it in, in some way. I think. And I don't feel that there's anything implicit in Undertale itself that like sort of like codifies the kind of fandom that has developed from it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Whereas like something for example, for talking about some of the man shooters on this list, I feel like there is sort of like a culture of might makes right that kind of translates over into the more virulent uh, vocal aspects of the fandom that we could yeah, probably definitely. talk about. But I mean, Undertale itself is like, and you can go back and forth on how effective it is with this, but it's mainly about being friends with people and how being friends with people is an awful lot nicer than killing people just because they're in your way. Did you all read um, Nathan Grayson's review of it on Kotaku? It, read it, read read it, it. immediately. It is, <laughs> it is the best game review I think I've ever read in my entire life. Um, I'll link it in the show uh, notes for this. Yeah, it's all about, about him moving to a new town and trying to make friends while playing Undertale. And it's, it's made me regret every review I've ever written that it isn't that review. Um, it's amazing. <laughs> no, no it's, it's amazing. Um, yeah. I was going to say... I, Given the ways that this topic had gone, I kind of wish I'd actually pushed it to the bottom of the new releases so it dovetails into the next section quite nicely, but Mm. because I didn't. MGS5, The Phantom Pain, or as Austin Walker put it on the last mini-sode, this game is whatever you want it to be. It came out, you could, you could, you want to talk, whatever you want to talk about, this game has got it. I didn't actually play it. Uh, I haven't played it yet either. Which I got a lot of, uh, I got a lot of junk for. Sorry, this but is for giving place. It's just, it's true. It's like you got almost every crit- critique under the sun of this yeah. of almost so many different aspects. It was your Rorschach test for what you wanted to talk about with video games. I believe that. <laughs> uh, I thought he just compelling argument I've had. Too. <laughs> Have none of us. Very good game. I don't own a PS4. Uh, I mean, it's also on PC, dude. And but. PS3, P- Xbox 360, and Xbox One. It's on everything except the Wii U, basically. Yeah, Aww. nothing's on the Wii U. Aww. I'm, I'm on the Wii U. I was playing it myself. <laughs> the Wii U, featuring yeah. Alan. <laughs> but, no, I mean, like, I've, I've had some issues, honestly, since Guns of the Patriots, the fourth game, and I just haven't really picked up any of the entries of Metal Gear Solid since then. Uh, I'm pretty passionate about the early games, but I guess that passion has sort of died down with these. At some point, I'm probably going to have to play 5. I'm a little ambivalent about picking up Ground Zeroes just because of just how grotesque some of the elements that have been discussed in that one are. Uh, I do feel like the most salient critique of MGS5 was the one that compared Kojima Kojima to uh, Jonathan Franzen. (laughs) That's amazing, I didn't see that. Meaning, meaning what? Well, meaning, so like, uh, the, the central argument there is that Jonathan Franzen somehow manages to be both, like, simultaneously brilliant and terrible. Like, oh. there are some ways that it, where he can, like, fine-tune his prose in a way that's absolutely gorgeous, but his insights into things are completely banal and immature, and his observations are just absolute shit. 
And if you look at the MGS <laughs> series where it's just like, I mean, these are like really complex, invest deep systems. And then you've got like this critique of nuclear like armaments and stuff like that. That's like, like seriously something that, like a 14 year old would write. And I can yeah. sort of see their point that, uh, you know, that's what you mean. it's like simultaneously really sophisticated in its presentation in a lot of respects. And I don't mean in terms of its narrative presentation, but just in terms of like the delivery of its systems is really sophisticated. But then so much of it is just so, so childish. But Jonathan Franzen was our replacement when David Foster Wallace died, and we needed our brilliant white bro of the 21st century. He was famous so, before that, wasn't he? Because he got famous with the corrections, which was long before. It was mostly because of, of his association with Wallace. Yeah, uh, maybe. So what's Kojima's excuse? He's, he's uh, secretly David Foster Wallace. Well, I mean, I think a lot of, I mean, this is probably going to come up again when we talk about auteurs later uh, in this episode, but, like, it's because we encourage these dudes too much. Uh, I mean, like, we're just like, oh, you're so brilliant and original. Yes, let's give you all this money and this freedom to create whatever you want. When really, I mean, the thing that Kojima means more than anything right now is an editor. I think all three auteurs that we're about, we're going to talk about later need an editor. Probably, yeah. But I know, but like Kojima, yeah. in a very like literal sense of like, oh my god, you just need someone to like cut out like the forty-five percent of this that is just strictly reiterating what you just said. But anyway, Metal Gear. <laughs> Metal Gear. That was amazing. Thanks. That that was that was actually me and not David Hitter. Uh, yeah. uh, my only story I can tell about Metal Gear is sometimes I put cardboard boxes on the top of my cat. <laughs> and I laugh. Uh, oh, that's right. You have a big cat, yeah, so it's not so I don't, cool. I, don't <laughs> I just completed Metal Gear Solid, like the original one, for the first time this year. I played through all of MGS 1 and 2. Congratulations. And, uh, I think I, I did it at one of my friends has a podcast, and he was doing a favorite game of the year, and I said, well, mine's Metal Gear Solid 1. <laughs> Um, I said, like, you know, when everybody's harping on about MGS4 and various graphical things, that when you're playing a game where you, you're playing as a cardboard box man that hides under other cardboard boxes, it feels quite rebellious. It's good. <laughs> uh, yeah, but they're, but they're great games. But yeah, Metal Gear 2 is like, a really good game. But no, you mean, you've got all these fantastic systems. Like, you can hide people in cupboards, you can slide around in pigeon shit. But then, you're like, you're having, as soon as you're having fun, a codec will creep in mm-hmm. as, soon, as soon as you're like oh, I'm really enjoying oh no oh what's this stamp guy oh what's he doing oh go away uh, what are the talk I don't care when the man who's this person oh go away <laughs> it's, just like, it's a it's one of these games where you, um, you're playing it and you're about to go out and meet some friends you go, okay well I'll just finish this cutscene and then save <laughs> and 45 minutes later you're like ah, ah I'm late Metal Gear Solid 3 is sort of like the perfection of all of that. And then starting with Metal Gear Solid 4, he was just like, well, maybe I should try to make these, you know, appeal slightly to Americans, despite the fact that they were already commercially successful. And so they became more like conventional shooters and kept sequestering their elements that kind of made them unique off to the side. But I think you're in for a treat with Metal Gear Solid 3. Metal Gear Solid 3, 
game of the year. I'm really looking forward <laughs> <laughs> I have promised people once I complete Wind Waker, I'm going to play that. That's what I'm playing at the moment. Playing Wind Waker. Uh, so okay, we won't see him for. Metal Gear Solid Three also has one of the best female characters I have ever run across in any the, game. The ever. boss. The boss. The boss. <laughs> You're so good at this voice. <laughs> what the hell? I really don't think that I am. I really don't. <laughs> it's coming across quite nicely. Really good. But we got to move along. Yeah, we do. <laughs> Off-world launches. Off-world! Yay! And it brings a big highlight to a very niche position within the game industry. Hmm. Yeah, they, 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 I think they, they sort of sort of cover the bigger stuff, but they're much more into, as Zoe, Zoe Quinn's initial post on their punk games. Hmm. Was that? I guess that was one of their very early posts then, wasn't yeah. it? I think it might actually no, I mean, be like, first. And that's the thing about Offworld, right? And this is something that's sort of like been intrinsic to uh, Lee's mission statement, is that they're actually not niche, right? Like, this is actually more of a majority than we tend to think about as being, like, what is the dominant discourse of games? Because we're talking about mm. everyone who plays, not just, you know, the gamer bro people who are into, like, the major like, $50 billion releases. Actually, I don't think anything has ever been $50 billion in this industry. But let's just cut that figure out entirely. <laughs> uh, but certainly there are, like, very expensive games that actually yeah. are not reaching the majority of players who are far more interested in, like, the small experiences and the weirder experiments, and that's the sort of stuff that Offworld focuses on. And that's sort of encapsulated as well in Zoe's post about punk games and alt games that came out uh, toward the launch of the of the site. Yeah. And the reason I wanted to put this right after Undertale was Gita Jackson's We Are Not Colonists, because mm-hmm. it falls along the similar lines of what we were talking about. These are people who are already here. Yeah, they have not come from the outside. You're just starting to notice right. that we exist. That was something that uh, that Catherine Cross echoed as well in her talk at uh, I believe it was uh, GX3. Just mm. uh, well, by the time this is released on the internet, it will be like a couple weeks ago. Mm. Uh, but it's like the the only difference now is that you're able to hear us. There was never a point where we were not gaming and you know invested in this cultural form. It's just that you're not able to shut us out any longer. Sucks to be you. Yeah. She didn't. She didn't say that last part. <laughs> she wouldn't. I mean, maybe it's something that goes back to the Witcher Three conversation too, though, right? Is this this idea that diversifying giant finger quotes that you can't see is taking something away or changing something? And mm-hmm. like Gita's piece says, right? That that's not true, right? We were all games were always, you know. Also, giant finger quotes for everyone. It's just that the maybe the conversation is changing, or the space for the conversation is changing with stuff like Offworld, right? I mean, that's the thing. Like, it had changed before. I mean, in the '90s, when marketing sort of doubled down on like the young male consumer as like this is what games are for. Yeah. I mean, that you can was, even mark a very specific year yeah. in which it happened. I mean, that was a deviation from how games up to that point had been sort of like viewed culturally and commercially. And so if anything, what's going on now is sort of bringing things back closer to reality. Than recalibration. Good, good term for it. Mm. Nice job. 
I've been practicing that one. <laughs> but maybe should be, it should be practicing Zoe Quinn's name a bit more too. Yeah, Zoe. <laughs> I am terrible at names. <laughs> like maybe it's a bigger question than can be addressed here, but um, it makes me think a bit about the underworld, the uh, Undertale sort of beef. Like something I always find really interesting about games is this: um, who games are for, and this sort of this creeping force of nostalgia and how we still carry that with us. And this feels like a threat because you were a little kid playing Nintendo in your basement, you know, and that's something I, at least personally as a critic, have none of. Right? I had a Game Gear that I had to beg my mom for. Like, I have none of this, like, games are this and they mean why to me. We're Sega sympathetic here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this yeah. is a safe space for Sega yeah. fans. No, but yeah. we're all Sega orphans here. Six batteries a week. Yeah, right. No, and this thing was like, I mean, I'm worried it's just going to be a part of the conversation. But having having been a girl when I was a kid, I had to beg my mom for it because it was a boy toy. Right? Girls didn't get Game Gears, so I wasn't allowed to have one. I had a beggar for it, you know. But that hasn't given me some kind of like aggressive, you know, Sega's the best. Uh, the, I'm going to go on GameFAQs and argue about how the best game ever is Echo the Dolphin. You know? It's, it's, yeah. like, you it's really live. hard <laughs> Which it is. Like, to be a Sega fanboy or fanfellow yeah. like, right. in this day and age. Because, like, I mean, they objectively lost, quote-unquote, the culture, the console yeah, I guess war. So. I guess they lost yeah. the culture war, too. But it's like, yeah, you just sort of like feel like you've been part of like a losing culture, like a losing side of a war for... <laughs> Like your entire adolescence into adulthood, and now it's like finally, like Sega's kind of cool again because people are like, "Oh yeah, remember the Dreamcast? Remember how great that was?" Nope, no. Remember when all the skies no? were blitzed? The games were fun. Yeah, right. When they didn't have their politics. <laughs> so it's all right. But it's no. Christmas night, so it's it's Christmas nights time. What does Nintendo right. got? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> they have no Christmas games. Sure, they don't. Well, I mean, Christmas doesn't exactly have the same sort of cultural weight in Japan as it does over here in the West. Bayonetta is a Christmas-themed game, vaguely. I will accept Bayonetta as Santa Claus. (laughs) Big, terrifying, 90% leg Santa Claus. (laughs) I was about to say, wait a minute, Santa Claus is not 90% leg. (laughs) Um, well, <laughs> well, I don't know what Santa Claus you grew up believing. It depends if you count all of the reindeer as part of Santa Claus. Santa paid really. Moving on. There we go. Additional <laughs> annual Santa Claus human centipede joke. But. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's a, it's a question maybe of like, are games changing, or is the are we just changing how we talk, right? Like, well, it's a question of lenses. Yeah, but we are also changing how we talk about games, and I don't think yeah. that those two are moving at the same rate, which is sort of where the disconnect comes from. Mm. I'm not sure it actually is because it's think of it this way: there is a pie chart. And in that pie chart is how much ownership over the conversations any sort of quote-unquote demographic has. And up until recently, it has been 100%, 95% bro. And off into the places where they couldn't see was everyone else. Mm. Now it's like 67% bro. 
But if you look at this chart over here, a bar graph, you'll notice the amount of bro has not gone down. It has actually increased. It's just everything else has astronomically increased over the same amount of time, so percentage-wise, it looks smaller. The bro, who is angry, is only looking at the pie chart. He's not looking at this associated bar graph. And that's where his insecurity and his rage come from. That's he thinks he's losing something. It almost sounds like you're reading for something. That was actually very compellingly stated. Good job. <laughs> I have my moments. Oh. So do we want to move on to virtual bodies? But the charts... Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I should add before we move on, uh, we are also on Offworld now, so thanks very much to Lee Alexander and Rob Bashesta. I believe I'm pronouncing his name right. For, uh, getting I would have messed both of them Bishitza, up. Bishitza, actually, I think is how it's pronounced. Rob Bethesda. Not Bethesda. Rob Congratulations, you have been upgraded to, <laughs> He's an RPG. to, to scrappy RPG developer. <laughs> nice guy, fill the bugs. <laughs> <laughs> we mean that in the nicest possible way, Rob. They have a cream for that now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of the big issues this year, which I only noticed after going through all the This Week in Video Game bloggings to pull out what got talked about, is I noticed that there was this huge theme of how, of how we see ourselves with virtual bodies, mm. whether it's the body politics of, of gay men, like Robert Yang was doing all year with his various sex games, whether it was the... I'm not even sure how to describe it when Hot Ryu came out, and now we're talking about Bayonetta because she's in she's DLC character for the latest Smash Brothers, so that's getting new attention. Or if it's just the visual of different skin, as many critics, including but not exclusively Evan Nice, please help me, Chris. Narcissus. Evan Narcissus. Evan Narcissus, Austin Walker, Natish, Natasha Nar Thompson. <laughs> Nat yes, I screw up names a lot. Natasha Thomas. Natasha Thomas, Sean Alexander, Samantha Blackman, and I'm sure a lot more that who spoke up that we just didn't put in this list about the I guess how blackness is viewed in games and other people of colors to uh, trans identities and narratives spoken very eloquently by AVB, Heather Alexandra, Anna Anthropy, and plenty, and I'm sure, again, plenty more that I did not put in this outline Including list. Including our own Riley McLeod, sure. who had an excellent piece on uh, queer bodies and stealth games on Offworld. Yeah. That was this year? Yeah, it was uh, September. Um, about the same time that the Hot Reuse stuff happened, and also about the same time I think that uh, that Metal Gear came out, because I got a lot of junk for not mentioning Metal Gear, and I was like, ooh, I never played it. Um, yeah, I was yeah, reading I, that recently, and I'm like, oh, I wish he had mentioned Metal Gear, but it's like, there's part of me that's just like, I know. well, not everyone has to have the exact same frame of reference as I do, Chris. Yeah, it was interesting to watch, to watch people read it as a commentary on Metal Gear, and I was like, I'm just never going to mention that I have never played a Metal Gear. This is this is fascinating, you guys. You've never played a Metal Gear? I've never played Metal any Metal Gears. I don't, Alan, I'm, you don't really have much of a moral high Yeah. Hey, I, I've actually completed Metal Gear 4 as well. I played it yeah, first, it. and it was the most confusing 20 hours of my life. I'm pretty sure I've played more Metal Gears than anyone here, um, but... Oh, and I've written really? fanfic for it, so... Uh, Yay. Yeah. Five Metal Gears. 
Five metal gears for friendship. Three turtle. Oh, Chris. I, I got five under my belt. How about you? Let's oh, see. So one through four. Then we have portable ops. Uh, then we have Metal Gear, the original Metal Gear Two. Okay, there we go. <laughs> I only had five. You got up to seven. Uh, uh, um, I to be on topic. Um, I love Todd. Todd's, <laughs> Todd's pieces about Robert's work I always find yes. incredibly insightful and ex- everything in addition to praising Austin Walker earlier. Everything Todd Harper does is also amazing. Yeah. I think uh, Todd Harper. I think. I mean, and I'm also speaking as a big person who is pretty uncomfortable talking about their size with relation to how that's represented in media. I'm really grateful to a lot of Todd Harper's work and how he specifically calls out how these are issues when we specifically like yeah. you know, refer to this body type as an ideal, even within like indie and niche spaces. Yeah, absolutely. And like and and for sure, like Robert Yang is allowed to design whatever bodies in his game that he wants that he finds attractive that he feels like makes the uh, aesthetic or narrative point that he wants. But I think Todd's point is also valid that you know, hey, when we do this, we're also sending sort of like an implicit message to people who don't fit those body types that they still don't have a place that they belong um, in this sort of this 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 realm of alt games. It is worth noting Robert Yang has retired. That uh, repeated character he's been using uh, in all his games. Yeah. His games. <laughs> he'll he'll he says he'll maybe show up as like a background cameo, but he will he won't be the central figure anymore. It's just like <laughs> what I have internet. I li- I pay bit my bills. Oh, we're back! Hurry, hurry! I, I have thoughts. Robert's games are smart about sex. I have thoughts about sex games. <laughs> oh god, that was it. We waited for that. <laughs> <laughs> I panicked. I don't even know what I was gonna fucking say anymore. Um, I'm gonna try to reset my adapter. Talk amongst it's, yourselves. It's good. No, it's good. It's good. It's good. We have it. Fuck, yeah. Got it. Fuck me up the ass. That's what I have to. Do. <laughs> is that your thought on Robert Young's sex yeah. game? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, Brook Club. Your thoughts are fuck me up the ass. Yeah. That's my thought. I thought it was right. just about pictures. <laughs> I mean, I think Todd has really smart critiques of Robert's games. I also think Robert's games are a critique. Uh, Todd's critiques of Robert's games fit well with what I think Robert is also trying to critique, though from a different angle, I'd say, I guess. Does I that mean, make I, sense? Yeah, I, I believe that they are both valuable. Uh, I mean, in as much as that's not perhaps the most precise or helpful term, I feel like both Robert's, gang, Robert's games uh, and... Todd's critiques of them lend an interesting perspective on what is otherwise a pretty sparsely occupied critical space. But it's it's also notable because like Robert Yang is one of the few, or he's pretty much the only one I can think of who's making like gay games, like games about gay people and the sex and their sexuality. Um, and Benji, Todd, Benji Bright is doing that with text games and. Um... I'm, I'm saying because Robert Yang's the only one I know, yeah. and it's it's very sparsely, even if you could name several others, which I'm sure many, many a few of our listeners could. It's still sparse, and it's and but because it's so sparse, Robert Yang tends to be like this is. It also kind of feels like this is it. This is the because vi- you said text games. This is the visual representation, which yeah. is what Tar Harper's 
talking about when he's talking about the body politics of it, because what ends up in Robert Yang's games, because there are so few of few like gay games, for lack of a better word, it tends to be representative of that space. Yeah, I mean, Todd and I have had a lot of really interesting conversations about the ways we both feel similarly about gay sex games that were coming from very different places, obviously. Um, where, like, for me, as a trans man, I have a very complicated, weird relationship to gay sex games, and um, I've had a lot of really smart conversations with him about that. I could rant about sex games for a long time, and I won't because my connection is bad. <laughs> yeah, but uh, speaking of the body politics, is like Hot Ryu kind of fills that same idealized space, yeah. and can anyone explain to me why specifically is this Ryu hot? Got a well, beard and just top off? I, yeah. I mean, I think <laughs> Riley and I are both into men in a general sense. Yeah. So, if I'm wrong, so I mean, I, if he if he hit me up on Grinder, I wouldn't turn him down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if he said, "Hey," <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, but I'm not really know, sure. <laughs> I mean, I think it's just how the beard flatters his face, and that combined just with like the, the larger than average eyes, like it sort of like draws attention. When when you combine like the softening effect of the beard and the large eyes, that he just like he looks kind of doe-eyed and sweet and more cartoony than he does usually. Mm. And there's so like did you something think about he looked hot before. No, no, I don't really. I mean, I'm trying to think of any like street fighter no, I... character that was like appealing in that sense to me, and I can't really Blanca. think of anyone. Huh. <laughs> You hush. <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't know. He what? He's from Street Fighter. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we just lost I, all credibility as a podcast. I don't know. What I still have my credibility. <laughs> okay, I do. I'm sure. I'm sure it'll be gone soon. How many versions of Street Fighter Two have you played? I've played thirty. <laughs> oh, just. <laughs> Just the two. Just two. Oh, I don't think I've ever played a Street Fighter. Maybe in an arcade once. Shh, don't tell anyone they'll find out we don't know anything about games. Fuck. Eric can oh. cut this. God damn it. Please someone say something about the next item on the list. <laughs> okay. All these people because are really I smart. Feel, I, I know, but I don't feel comfortable about saying Not anything about you. this. We already talked about Bayonetta and Smash a bit. Let's yep. move on to Auteurs Gone Wild, which is the... Oh, we're just going to skip over oh. the black bodies? I mean, I, I could rant at length about giant finger quotes identity politics in games, right? Which I won't, but... I mean, I think that's also going to bear out in our uh, end-of-the-year retrospective, like, this year in video game blogging list, because there were... Mm -hmm quite a few articles that tackled... Ooh, there uh, are quite a game. lot. <laughs> it was a big thing. I always I always aim for uh, modest understatements, so quite a few. Mm. <laughs> um, but it's... Yeah. yeah. And actually, I mean, some of these, I mean, they keep coming up. Like, I remember I recently uh, got a full-time position as the news editor for Sam, and we haven't officially <laughs> launched yet. Yay! Yay! So what I'm doing an awful lot is editing freelancer pieces, and one of them, for instance, is like like you know these indie games that you can look forward to in 2016, and I'm like this is great, but you know you talk about Cuphead, but maybe not the fact that 
you know, mm. some people have brought up the fact that the cartoon aesthetic that it's referencing kind of <laughs> is problematic. And, you know, like the writer not being confident, she's like, oh, let's just take it out entirely. And I'm, no, 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 no. There is a way that we can frame this in a way that we can be cautiously optimistic about mm. the thing while also recognizing, hey, someone has talked about how this is totally not cool in some respect. And I feel like if nothing else can be said about this year, I feel like the extent to which we have talked about body politics and ID politics in games has become like so widespread that it's just sort of like an established part of like this is something that we're going to talk about when we talk about things like character generators, talk about uh, things like the aesthetics that we're referencing in games. I mean, I'm not saying it's perfect. Yeah. Um, it's also that the the conversation has shifted more from how many black characters can we even find in the medium, hint, not very many, to what is the quality of those characters in the first place. Yeah, I think, I think like, to dovetail on what Chris is saying, if there's something this year has shown me, is I, I think the quality of the conversation is shifting, but it's it's definitely something I've... I've struggled with this year in games, I guess, is, is how to feel like I can talk with nuance about things related to my identity. And I'm not entirely... I don't think we're quite there yet, no. but I think we're getting there. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, like, I was reading through uh, a bunch of uh, articles last night for our end-of-the-year list, and there were a few... And I think it was actually after I was reading your piece, Riley, that I reflected, like, I don't exist at all at games. Like, you know, leaving aside the fact that I'm asexual and non-binary, it's just my body type does not exist even when you have, for example, a fat character. I just am not there. And so my response to that has always been to not sort of place myself in games at all, to disembody myself as much as possible, and even within the discourse to disembody myself and talk about myself as little as possible. So definitely I think, yeah, it's like it's not like shit's perfect right now. But I do think that, if nothing else, I think between uh, Tariq Moose's piece on Polygon and just all the discourse that's been gone on this year about um, bodies that we're going to be listing off in the show notes, I mean, it's a thing that we can comfortably address without... I mean, we're still going to get you know, shouted at <coughs> for talking about these things, but I don't think we're as successfully shouted down anymore, if that makes sense. But do you think, like, it's more of a can of worms than I want it to be, probably, but, like, how is representation super important? Like, I mean, and this is, like, something that I remember from something that Ian Bogus wrote, and I think it might have been from this past year, it might have been from the year before. But, no, I don't think it's the be-all, end-all. I don't think that, you know, you can sort of, like, encompass every identity within capitalism and suddenly uh, you have like a intersectional utopia or something like that. I feel like if you're going to actually critically address hegemony, it's going to have to be outside of the capitalistic system. Um, That being said, I mean, a lot of players just frankly want to see themselves in games and not being able to have that experience sort of deprives them in a lot of, like, this is, like, not something that I would, like, apply to them, but this is something they they have several, like, like, like several of them have articulated, of kind of, like, having a frame of reference to mm. even start to identify a lot of these issues. Yeah. And if it helps to sort of get that conversation going of, well, now we have, like, these 
you know, black, queer, trans characters in games, but that's not kind of addressing any of, like, the socioeconomic issues that we're facing. Maybe we can go this far, this step further. Right. So, I mean, I feel like there is a place for representation as, like, a goal to reach in games, but I don't think it's an endpoint. Yeah. I, did a, I, I think I told the story at Indicate, but I talked to someone from Bioware about... Um, the trans character in Witcher... Is it Witcher? What's the one with the trans character? <laughs> Dragon Age Inquisition. Dragon Age, the yeah, right. But there's, Prim, yeah, right? Right, but and, there's one trans character. And, and I would said she, she was very proud of what they'd done. And I would said to her, I'm like, you know, like, as a trans person, like, that doesn't actually mean that much to me. Like, I'm the only trans person in the whole wide world. Like, I'm not... That doesn't actually make me very happy. Like... And, like, Dang. there are other trans people, like, in the Dragon Age universe, but, yeah. like, prior to Inquisition, they were mainly, like, gag characters. Yeah. Which is unfortunate. And, like, even, like, Krem, like, a lot of people really love Krem, and I haven't yet played Dragon Age Inquisition, so I can't comment on him personally, but, like, he's voiced by Jennifer Hale. Hmm. So, like, even in, like, in the best-case scenario, it's just like, yes, this is every, like, note-perfect thing. It's like, you're still having him yeah. voiced by a huh. cis woman. Right. So it's like, I mean, it's in some cases it feels like like you know two steps forward, one step back, et cetera. But yeah, and it's, I mean, it's funny, right? It's important, but like, and I obviously like, come, you know, there's a diversity of experiences in general, like you know, obviously, but I mean, I would like to be in a place where like Krem is not like the only example of a trans guy <coughs> in games that we can. Play yeah, to. so it wouldn't we wouldn't have to hang all our hopes on that or something. For uh, sure, sure. Yeah, it's a big topic, I guess. <laughs> it's a big topic that I have opinions on. Agreed. All right, now I think we can move on Sorry. to Auteurs Gone yeah. Wild. No, 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 it's nothing to apologize for. It's, it's... No, it's just I wanted it at least covered and to some extent because yeah, no, you can't have ahead. two big things like that. I guess I was just really excited for the section header for this one because, <laughs> as we said at the beginning, I was just so kind of rude yeah. about these. It was very clever. And so the alternative title for our tours gone wild is Peter Mala Don't. <laughs> that doesn't doesn't make sense. No. The name's not Peter Mala Do. Twitter account. That guy. There's no one I know named Peter Mala Do. Uh, that's Peter Mala yeah. uh-huh. Do. His French counterpart. Yeah. Uh-huh. There's no D. It's new, not do. No, a, that's no. There's the fake Twitter there's account. There's fake Twitter account. That's oh, what's on about. Remember yeah. the Molly Jam. Yeah. More things have, like, Sounds more great good. games have come out of the Molly Jam than have come out of Peter Molyneux's <laughs> creative efforts in the last few <laughs> years. Aww. So, I, I think we're going to do this, since we've opened it up, we're going to tackle this in reverse order. So, I put this on here for one single reason, mm. that... Rocks, Paper, Shotgun interview. Yeah. And I have opinions about this because apparently I am now some sort of, I've been told I'm some sort of journalist and I felt very bad for three days after being told that. (laughs) Because I now interview people. I've been practicing saying I'm a games journalist and then not making a face. No, just just say you're a journalist or a writer. Don't put the word games in front of it. Uh, You're better than that. (laughs) No, I'm so serious. I'm serious. No, I'm serious well, too. Place... I always introduce myself as a journalist, not a games oh. journalist. <laughs> like if I like get pushed, I say I'm an entertainment journalist. Oh, that's smart. I, yes, I write about entertainment on the internet, and at which point they says, Are "You a porn writer?" <laughs> 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 I 
But anyway, I have opinions about this because this was a very shoddily done interview, and as an interviewer, I would not get away with half of this shit. Yeah. It's breathtaking. I was rereading it um, while you guys were talking for the past couple of minutes, and I was like, I'll just skim read this. Oh, oh, no, I won't. No, this is really quite... Oh, my God, it's still going. Oh, my God. And... And it's, I, I saved it to Instapaper using my little extension. You can tell it's long, so it took about five seconds to do it, and it's normally instant. It is, I mean, um, I, I, it, it's not the most professional of interviews, but I do feel like Molyneux had it coming. Like, I do feel like he's, he's bullshitted people for many, many years and promised them in at a lot of games. And and here's my question, like, does Molyneux believe what Molyneux says? Because if he does, then I don't know if we could consider it bullshit exactly. Oh, he believes it when he says it. Yeah. I think then reality smacks him in the face with a very large stick. Maybe, maybe delusion is a better way of putting it than bullshit then. Okay. No, 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 seriously, because like, this, is, this is part of what it's about. Is the, what I think is really interesting is, it, aside from you know, whether or not it's good interview technique, it's really interesting the way John Walker is talking about the funding for Goddess and saying, you, know, you took half a million pounds off people and you said you would do it in seven months. And he says, no, I don't know how much money it, it takes to make a game. And then, oh, we didn't actually ask for all the money we needed to make a game. Everybody knows you make less than that. And as it goes through, it just seems like there's a real, there's a real disconnect from reality. Now, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to shit on Molyneux. I, I like most of his games, and I think like he's, I, I really admire the passion for what he does. But I think it's pretty clear here that he's, he's not a good businessman, and he's not a guy to be running a studio. He should be like Shingy, that guy from Yahoo, just you know, <laughs> strategizing in a basement somewhere. He's an ideas man, and that is the problem: is that he's running his studios, and he's pitching his projects, and he. He shouldn't be... He's not a project manager. Does that make yeah. sense? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but for, as, as an interviewer, it's the, the first question is, I, if I asked this, they'd hang up. Like, yeah. Alan, if I had asked you anything near, do you think you're a pathological liar as your first question, would you have hung up on me? Don't know whether to say yes or no because one of those might make me a pathological liar. Well, ask, ask, <laughs> ask let's let, let's try it. Ask, ask me now. Ask, just, just ask me. <laughs> well, it's not, it's not fair. If Are you, know you a pathological liar, Alan? No, fuck off. No, I'm not. There you go. Yeah, That's we go. That's the I'm still on the line. Yeah. What more do you want? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a nasty interview. I mean, I think and I, I, yeah. I get the idea that you want to be hard with someone who's been who's really skirted the I issue. Mean, there's hard, and there's being self righteous. And I feel like, I and and John Walker is very good at being self righteous. Oh, well, good. I'm not sure if this was a good quality <laughs> self righteous, but okay. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the thing. It's like like you don't ask a question like that because you're especially interested in the answer, right? right. I mean. You know, no one says that like when because they're honestly interested in what Molyneux is going to say. They they ask it because they want to sound angry and they want they to want sound, to provoke a response, uh, offend, offended, and they want you know they want they demand answers even though the answers themselves are less important than the action of demanding them. And that is why that interview rubbed me so wrong. It's like I mean we 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 titled the section "A Tour's Gone Wild," but in this particular case, I mean. <sighs> Molyneux came out smelling like roses next to John Walker, if you ask me. Mm. 
You know, I think they both come across quite badly. Honestly, I don't, think, don't think there were any winners in this. Yeah. I mean, like, Millenew in general just is not able to win. I mean, he's so good at just sabotaging himself just by opening his mouth. But <laughs> I feel like, I mean, John Walker is closer to our own professional field, and that's, like, the perspective that I feel a bit more animated about when it comes to this topic. I mean, it's a... I think sometimes it's actually something I, I talk to a lot of people about, like Jim Sterling about, you know, like what what are the limits of aggression sometimes? Like what is it what does it do to start an interview with Peter Molyneux? Do you think you're a pathological liar, right? Like, I mean, this what, isn't yeah, Brock Jim Nixon, Sterling, right? I mean, this is like yeah. a guy asking somebody about a fucking video game. Yeah, like And at the same down. time, Jim Sterling keeps his ire to, to editorials. When he interviews, he is yeah. on the level. Yeah, like I think Jim Sterling has his heart in the right place and has good politics, but sometimes I feel like I'll watch his videos where he's just like ragging on a shitty Steam Greenlight trailer and sometimes I'm like, you know, like what's the point, man? Like it's just a shitty game, right? Like then if they're not scamming anyone, profession, to be honest. yeah, it's just like leave it alone. You know, <laughs> somebody made a crappy game and are trying to sell it. Like, what's the point in yelling at them? You know. Yeah, but I didn't see. I, well, that's where I. That's where I just yelling, agree with yelling it, section. Well, the thing is with his yelling is usually those developers like retaliate. He's like he doesn't care up until they bring it into the real world. Yeah. Like when it's just like eh, it's a bad game, I wouldn't waste your money on it. Right. He's rather level on it and focuses entirely on the material yeah. that's before him. And then they try and they try and knock down his entire YouTube channel, and that's when he gets angry. Right. But, that, and, but Peter Molyneux doesn't do that. No, this is this is where I think the Molyneux Walker thing is very different because like this isn't this isn't a, a Steam Greenlight trailer. This isn't a crap trailer for a game you may right. or may not buy. This is this you're talking about people who have pledged over half a million pounds in their own money in a Kickstarter and. Uh, we're not going to talk about much Kickstarter stuff in this podcast, but Kickstarter have hired a journalist to investigate this drone. I think it was over three million pounds were funded, and nobody's getting any drones. And this oh, is wow. like, you, yeah. <laughs> Wait, why would you hire a journalist for that as opposed to like an actual like? Um, they're doing, investigator. They've hired an investigative journalist to find out what went wrong. I don't know why they've done that instead of hiring like you know Dick Tracy or Jessica Jones, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you know, but that's that's what that's what they're doing. But I think I think this is different because this is, you know, people have already spent lots of money on this and they've been promised a certain thing by somebody that should know better, mm. and that 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 is that's right. So, so what's our so that that brings up another question for me. It's like, what is knows better in this industry? Because He's been in for thirty years, you should know how long it takes to make one. Well, a lot of these dudes have been like that for example, have aligned themselves with the hashtag that shall not be named and have been in this industry for decades and they should know better, and they certainly don't. But, or, yeah, I actually uh, like Peter Molyneux, unlike the, yeah. the, the hashtag. In fact, I, nearly, I, I, I saw him at Eurogamer Expo. I almost went up to him, then he disappeared. Because I was going to say, you know what, Fable 2 is one of my favorite games ever. And he went, oh, thank you very much. And I would have said, <laughs> and Black and White is one of my least favorite games of all time and ruined my entire summer back in 1999. Then he went, Oh, well, uh, 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 and then I would have jumped off at him and said, ah, liar. <laughs> and I all right, let's up. all make a pact to one day ask him if he's a pathological liar. No. That's, no. that's mean. As someone who who actually, like, gets paid for asking people questions, that's, I can't do that's that. Fair. And that's also, you nice. know, it's like, I mean, I can't 
help but feel like that's a really ableist thing to ask. Like, if you're asked for, for something sure, that they yeah, have, yeah. like, a pathology yeah. or something like that, it's just, like, you're basically asking, like, him, are you mentally ill? Is this, like, a thing that you, like, can have an actual, like, mental illness for? It's like, come on, dude. I'm, you're also not going to get a – you're also not going to get an answer because whether or not he that. is, he's going to say no. Yeah. Just logically, he's not going to answer the question. <laughs> he's always going to say, this is like a logic question. <laughs> this could be like one of the demon doors in Fable. <laughs> <laughs> if I were to ask you a clone... One of these doors has tigers behind it. Moving uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. so on from Peter Molyneux. I'm going to need a minute, sorry. Peter <laughs> Molyneux made a tiger. Imagine this demon door going like, if I said, are you a pathological liar? <laughs> and you can do like, a, you can fart on the door and it goes, that's correct. And it's just a crossbow or some shit. <laughs> Alan, I feel like you should I do never, voiceover work. You get I never got a in one of those fucking doors at Fable. <laughs> Um, I played Fable I 2 after a really bad breakup, and I, I didn't realize that if you tried, if you married someone and you tried to bring them with you, they would, like, divorce you if they got scared. And so I got gay married twice in, like, Fable 2, and then I got gay divorce broken up with twice. And, like, on the rebound from a really bad breakup, I was like, everything in my life is garbage. <laughs> like, I mean, I haven't actually fake haven't people keep Fable dumping too. me. But I played Fable 3, and, like, I married someone, and then I moved into the castle, like, in the latter half of the game. Uh, and then I divorced her because I wanted to marry someone else, and I didn't want to do the polygamy thing. Uh, but then she kept the castle. <laughs> so I wasn't able to access any of the quest content in the latter half of the game because I wasn't able to go to the castle that I was the queen of. You gotta get the prenup. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Anyway, anyway, speaking of Jim Sterling yelling at people very angrily, uh, fuck Konami. Yeah, <laughs> Oh, that that hashtag is the beautiful hashtag because <laughs> Kojima is the next auteur gone wild, but it's not just him; it's everything. Mm. I didn't know that much about the background till I till just today, in fact. So. I actually found that wonderful explainer article that just decides, you know what, we're sort of at the tail end of this thing. Yeah. Here's everything they've done. Yeah, yeah super I, think he, I, think I think Simon Parkin interviewed Kojima for The New Yorker, actually. Might be worth hunting down and adding in. Um, anything pretty that sure Simon that... Parkin does in general is worth reading. <laughs> yeah, including his new book. Hey, it's out now. Steal plug. Oh, he's, he's, he's a friend. Last book, it's good. It's called uh, Death by Video Game. Yes. Uh, I have another one of his books on my shelf. I have not actually gone through yet. Sorry, Simon. But in my defense, it's one of his like 101 best games ever, sort of thing. But the thing is huge. Yeah. But anyway, so yeah, so uh, yes. So yeah, so I mean, what the thing the thing with Kojima is right. I mean, I mean, Konami is full of shit. I mean, we don't have to be very political about that. It seems to be uh, pretty much the state of things. It's like being... Forcing their developers to literally clean up shit in some cases. Mm -hmm. Well, I didn't... I I read... Yeah, I don't know if that's an actual thing. I I, I read elsewhere that it was people who were being laid off and they were giving them the opportunity to do other jobs. I don't think they were... I think the stuff about them punishing people was... I don't know what the evidence about that is like. It seemed a bit flaky. I... 
all, all I heard is the reports that they made some of their programmers who weren't quite on the job yet, who weren't doing a specific job yet to clean toilets at the company. Oh, wow. That's um, worse than I've heard. Wow. And, you know, I mean, that's just another thing where, like, because I haven't read the articles themselves, I don't want to weigh in too much on that. But Kojima himself, I mean, doesn't really need, like, an awful company behind him in order to do wild auteur things. Because he, like a lot of auteurs, has just been encouraged so much that he can, for example, uh, assure us that uh, a lady in a bikini will make us ashamed of ourselves. If we find out the reason for her bikininess. I was reading some articles on her recently, actually, and I was reminded that, like, she's not the first... Oh, spoiler alert. The reason Quiet doesn't wear any clothes at Middle Gear Solid 5 is that she has a virus in her lungs, a fungal infection or something like that, that requires her to instead breathe through her skin, like through mm-hmm. photosynthesis. And she's not the first character in the Metal Gear universe that is photosynthetic. There is, in fact, another character from Metal Gear Solid 3. Poison uh, Ivy? (laughs) (laughs) But interestingly enough... Hey, I'm not done. But, like, he still gets to wear clothes, this character. Because he isn't photosynthetic. His clothes are. But, of course, it's the women, you change it to the skin. Mm. Because you can actually, after you kill him, you can steal the clothes and become photosynthetic yourself in Metal Gear Solid 3. I wonder why they didn't keep that in continuity for Big Boss. What well, the thing is, Big Boss? the thing is, it's an interesting sci-fi idea, but saying that we're going to be ashamed rather than, and, and the thing is, no. And then if, also, that, like, if that had just been it, maybe, but and then the no, game goes pretty far out of its way to like shove Quiet's body into the camera's like eye. In a lot of scenes, I mean, if you look look through the cutscenes, even if you haven't played the game, you can see that there is an awful lot of, like, textbook male gaze shit going on. Um, You're in the helicopter and she's doing all these poses. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the idea that uh, we should be ashamed when there is, like, a directorial act of shoving her body in her face. It's like, I mean, like, there's like, there's there's possibly some shame to be assigned here, but I don't think it's on the part of the player. Yeah, it's not, it's not quite the kind of shame he thinks. I am ashamed that I believed you, Kojima, <laughs> <laughs> whenever you said that I would be ashamed. Yeah, but I, th- I kind of wish Sony didn't pick him up and his studio just got, like, smaller investors forcing him to go small. I don't know. know. That's like an enforced editor right there. I mean, no, but like what we talked about before, right, in that, you know, he's sort of in that Jonathan Franzen sense, like, he is good at creating these big systems. It's just kind of like the rest of it that is just sort of questionable at some point. I would be all in favor of, like, a Metal Gear and everything but name that, for instance, had absolutely all the elements that the existing franchise does, like including like the really bizarrely realistic weather patterns and all that stuff, and just, you know, more homoeroticism and then we're done. You know, we just, just if someone could just go, you know what, we don't ne- actually need another woman in a bikini. We're, we're, we're good on that level. I don't think anyone actually plays Metal Gear for like the Sisset male eye candy. I mean, I don't know about you guys. But I pretty much play those games because they are homoerotic as fuck. 
<laughs> nope, I play it because they're very nice box simulators. Uh, I'd, I'd play them to I'd play them solely to shit people in the balls with tranquilizer guns. Well, there we go then. Homoerotic as fuck. No one's disproven anything. <laughs> Speaking of needless bikini women, David Cage. <laughs> he That's he always a hell of a segue. He's the guy who always has people watch, uh, women washing themselves in games. He always has a shower scene, doesn't he? Uh, there's one in there's one in Fahrenheit or Indigo. I'm trying to remember. Was it the, was it the female detective? Or, yeah, no, it was the heavy rain male well. detective. Now, heavy rain had um, uh, both a shower, a shower scene for her, rain. and then there was like this and a male shower scene, well, and then there was the shower and beyond two souls. I think it's women only because the only it's a female character only. Yeah. Uh, so, oh, so oh, anyway, like, so uh, right, David Cage yeah. uh, announced his new game. Whatever happened to that other wizard game that he was doing? Was that just a tech demo? Oh, no, no, that was, tech that was a tech demo. Oh, okay. Because I would pay for that game and not this one that he actually... Well, well especially the wizard, especially, like, say, Line, <laughs> where it, like, just all interrupted this big sorcerer doing his evil magic. And then he goes, Line, and the lights come up. He says, oh, for crying out loud, John. <laughs> David Cage is the wizard. What's this new game? I, I, I missed that. it somehow. Was this at um, I, E3 or something? Like, no, it was. they gave a trailer like in October. Oh, yeah. yeah. But then it was like, well, what's the actual name of it? Is it just like Chicago or... Oh, right. Yeah, right, right, right. Detroit, Detroit. Detroit. Yeah, <laughs> right, of course. That's embarrassing. Yeah, it, okay, yes. I, so, yeah, that was the one where oh, she's it's like, so we have like these replicants, basically, who look uh, indistinguishable from people, except they have glowing parts on their temples or something like that, and it's just like slavery. Right. Um, and we're just going to talk about this, you know, with like these really, you know, simpering white folk as a stand-in for all the slavery stuff in a city that historically is very racially divided in the United States. I mean, it's another one of those things where it's just like, I mean, what is with Europeans and deciding that they can, like, really, like, incisively weigh in on American politics? In I, I mean, that's my, I, I have said this for years. David Cage, make a fucking game set in France. <laughs> You do not know this country. I don't live in Philadelphia, but I know Philadelphia better than you did for Heavy Rain. <laughs> like, this is the I Donald mean, Trump argument for game development. Uh, <laughs> I don't. I mean, I don't think we need to like go go even that far. I mean, like Lars von Trier has made a hell of a career uh, about films ostensibly set in America, at least some of them, without ever having you know set foot on a plane to go over to the United States. So, I mean, there is a case to be made, I guess, for the European auteur in creating these sorts of, like, fantasy versions of, uh, like, another country. I mean, in a lot of ways, that's what Metal Gear is, too, right? I mean... Well, to be fair, kind of I'm not saying that a European can't. No, no, no. I mean, I'm saying David Cage probably shouldn't, because he's proven he can't. That's the thing, is just, like, David Cage is no Lars von Trier. He's not even a Hideo Kojima. He's actually just pretty terrible. Well, were the sex scenes in were the sex scenes yeah. in Fahrenheit more horrifying than Antichrist? I never actually got the sex scene <laughs> in Fahrenheit. Have you never you know, done the sex simulation in Fahrenheit? It's like, well, you no, move the the stick, you have to move the out. stick up to thrust. I can't remember if you have to press a button to orgasm, but it's not horrifying. They cut that out of the American version? What the hell do I have this thing for? <laughs> because it would have been AO and they only wanted an M. It's um, it's so it's okay. so awkward. It's the most awkward sex I've ever had in my life, and that's quite a glam. 
I mean, I thought <laughs> that, like the awkwardness of the quote unquote sex in Heavy Rain was in some way sort of like appropriate. I skipped that too because it made no narr- no narrative sense to kiss a woman, so I, I missed that scene as yeah, well. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't know. I think I was like reviewing it for Pop Matters at the time, so I tried to be as and I missed the sex scene in Beyond Two Souls as well. There's Come like, to think of it, be- like because she was traumatized, like, you couldn't to, do like, it. Like hold like four buttons in order to unbutton. I think as her name is Madison. You're supposed to unbutton her bra or something like that, and it's just like, yeah, that's kind of what it's like. Yeah. But apart from that, it's like okay. I've I've rewatched this trailer, and it is a lot more racially mixed than we've been led. If you just read text, like descriptions isn't of it, it, like the lady that has been around since the Kara trailer is like. She's white, but, like, a lot of the replicants are mixed race. A lot of the people on the stage are mixed race. Although I did notice that all the yelling protesters were white. Hmm. So I'm not hopeful, but it is somewhat, like, misrepresentative of what's there. I'm like, even if he does, like, like, goes in and tries to do his best with respect to the race politics of a city like Detroit, I mean, I just, I would not trust him based on his track record to do anything decent by and the And from city. what we've seen, there's nothing, like, specific to Detroit that ne- that necessitates that he's going to deal That's with. That's the thing. Like, it's like, even with, like, Heavy Rain, it's just like, I mean, yeah, you're in Philadelphia. What is What about Heavy Rain really necess- necessitates this in Philadelphia? Because especially since everyone keeps using uh, uh, anglicized French ter- European terms for things. <laughs> Yeah, it's just like a wasteland. Wow, this city's really gone to... Oh, did you mean a parking lot? <laughs> <laughs> oh. Do we want to talk about games reservation? Kind of, because they're going away. It is interesting. Okay. Is it? Well, okay. <laughs> I'll take a word for it. Well, there was the That's EFF ruling, so I guess we should talk about that. And PT pulled from PSN. Before we move on completely from our tours, yeah, yes. all right, because PT things are interesting, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so before we move on completely to our next topic, this is actually a good segue. Um, it's not a segue if you keep saying it's a segue. That's just a link sentence. <laughs> well, no, it is a it is a segue because you stand because regardless of what you call it, you stand on it, lean forward, and moves forward. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. Uh, Cycling back to Kojima a bit, one of the things that most people were pretty bummed out about uh, when it was revealed that he would be leaving Konami is that uh, the Silent Hills project that he was doing along with Guillermo del Toro, and we later found out the uh, manga artist Juji Ito, was going to be canned. And so not only was there that blow, but then the sort of like the trailer slash preview slash demo thing for the game Silent Hills PT was yanked off PSN. So the only people in the world who now have PT are those that have uh, it already downloaded onto their PS4s. And uh, yeah. there's been, I think, I remember there was, like, some dude on Gama Sutra a few months back that talked about, like, recreating it as best oh, yeah. he could in Unity or something like that. So, I was like, that's the state of games preservation there, is that we're just, like, we're we're remaking things in Unity based on our own copies of the game. Because <laughs> companies do not want their own games preserved or backed up meaningfully. 
which is something that kind of was driven home with, like, the EFF ruling. Uh, sorry, what am I saying? The EFF is not ruling on anything. It's the copyright ruling that came earlier this year regarding whether, for example, ROMs and other backups of data was considered fair use. And if you could jailbreak consoles yep. to materialize other older works. And so the ruling there is that, no, you couldn't, which was, uh, and the EFF argued uh, as much about this, is it's placing more power in the hands of IP holders and even less in the hands of those uh, that would want access to these, you know, abandoned games or preservationists who are interested in backing things up or preserving them for museums. So it's sort of just kind of congealed into like this big, ugly snot ball of no one is interested <laughs> in preserving games in this industry except for people who aren't really in this industry. They're peripheral to the industry at best. So, you know, internet... You think, and you think we would have learned from the silent era of film where, like, 90% of all those films are just gone forever. It's like, okay, we have a chance for the games, but, oh, no, it's not just the, our silent era that's going away. You want to nominally chuck the rest of it with it. I mean, it is difficult to preserve it if you... If you've been ever reading um, Gita's piece on Offworld about uh, the pulling of PT, there's a link to another piece by Seamus Young over at the Escapist. Sorry, and uh, <laughs> sorry for sorry for telling you to read the Escapist, but there is. So he talks about like the difficulties of emulating PC games going forward, and how there's so many different versions of the DirectX runtime. It's very hard to emulate Windows. It's hard to emulate new consoles, and it's only going to get more complex and more difficult as things go on like if you are running an old version of apple's iwork for the mac you can't actually open those documents on the latest version of iwork and those are that's just a text document right mm. so if you've got like a video game that has so many you know, graphics assets and things it's infinitely more complex it's really it's really really challenging and it's not just this is a problem it's not just a matter of if you get a copy of metropolis somewhere you know you could copy that to a new film medium. You can't do that with games. I mean, Although the thing is, it's like we're not even allowed to try. Mm -hmm. We're not even allowed to work, yeah. or work have, get workarounds for the issues. Yeah, but that, that, that's the... I guess you've got the, the technical challenges of things like you know emulation and stuff. Ars Technica had a really good piece in emulation and like the kind of computer you need to actually accurately emulate in NES. And, and it, requ it, it like requires ten times the processing power, no matter how primitive. Far, you far more than that. I think it wasn't even yeah, possible until a couple of years ago to have a computer fast enough to actually do that kind of accurate low. Because that's that's. Do you remember whenever the first N sixty four emulator came out and it was called Ultra HLE? It's in a high level emulator and it you know kind of fixed a lot of that stuff. If you're doing low level emulation, you need serious horsepower even to do something as simple as an NES. But you've got a lot of technical stuff, and then you've got the DRM crap on top of it. Where you got all the all the digital nonsense. I mean, you know, I've got a big pile of 360 and Xbox games, and I can play those in the old consoles. They they do kind of work, but there's the problem with digital games is there's no way to lend PT to your friend. There's no way to yeah. How would you do? How would you go and like reverse engineer it? You can't reverse engineer PT because it's a digital game in a DRM wrapper on an operating system you can't even access. And that is yeah. that, and that's a total nightmare for preservation and, and archiving. And you can't do the like. Has anybody read Darius Kazami's book on Jagged Alliance Two, where he looks a lot of the code and explains how the game works behind the scenes? Yeah, cool. you can't 
you can't do that from a historical point of view. You can't go and you know chop into the code. It's, it's impossible. So it just stuff like PT is good because it's an interesting combination of it's it would be technically hard to emulate anyway, but the DRM just makes it impossible. I mean, this is one of my one of my many master's degrees is in library science. <laughs> is this not working? I no, am the is... page master. Uh, so it's, it, these questions are super interesting, right? You can't like the way you can't share games is such a weird thing compared to you know books or movies or unless it's um, physical. Yeah, yeah like it's such a, a weird thing, and it does make it hard to archive them because the technology changes and. I just realized something. Remember back when the Expo and the PS4 were both getting promoted and there was like a big to-do about how the Expo was going to put limits on sharing games with friends. And there was like this big, like, overly complicated explainer of how you could only have like five installs on different computers and if they had it, you can't have it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then like PS, like Sony responded by creating like this really tongue-in-cheek advert where they just like showed, I think it was... uh, I can't even remember their names offhand, but like one executive handing a physical copy of a disc of something to yeah, another the executive. Band too. But that's really, but that's really band that's but whenever it, you think like about this, context, and this is like really Sony that, right? I mean, like yeah, but like at the time it was just like oh, oh that's so funny. But like we 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 forget that like yeah, these are basically the same corporation in everything but name and their sh- and shareholders, right? In that you know their policies at the end of the day are going to be very similar. And yeah. it's not as though Sony was able to do anything to prevent Kony. Uh, sorry, Kony. <laughs> stop. Hashtag stop. <laughs> stop Konami from public PT. So in the end, it's like, I mean, in even the best case scenarios, like, I mean, PT didn't have a physical disc that you could right. tongue-in-cheek, you know, loan someone while they're on camera, while mugging it for the camera for uh, your, your X-Bone rivals, right? Uh, in, in the end, this is like like a, a fundamental locking down of culture into these digital assets that have, like, a single choke point. And if a consumer doesn't have the access to that choke point, they're basically cut off from having any sort of rights over the media they've purchased at all. I think it's really it's really interesting though. Um, you just said about the Xbox One and how you could only share games with up to five people, five installs, right? They and then Microsoft backpedaled and all of that. And you now have a system that's actually worse for sharing digital games because now you can't share it with anyone. How many people? How many PS4 owners can you share PT with? Zero. Mm. How many? So if you buy a digital, if you buy The Witcher Three and PS4, how many of your friends can you share that digital purchase with? Is the answer nobody except yourself? Doesn't Steam have a thing, or at least they wanted to? Well, it's yeah. Steam does if you're not using a library at the same time. Yeah, that's the thing is you can't. And if they're family. I didn't realize this because my my house just did this. We were like, oh, we should share our Steam libraries, and I didn't realize that if I'm if I'm playing any Steam game, they can't play any of my games. Yeah. And I was trying to explain to one of our roommates who's not really a gamer, and I was like, it's like if you lent me a movie, but then when I wanted to watch it, I, like, took your TV or something. And she was like, what? And I was like, I, I don't understand. Like, it's so weird. It is so absurd. And it's a lot of it seems to be in the effort of sort of, like, transplanting old media ideas onto new media. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. And just, like, hoping that no one's going to notice that that's logically flawed. Yeah. 
don't know. I mean, you can get around it, but I just log out and yeah. go into offline mode, but it's still bizarre. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, in summary, fuck Konami. <laughs> Better okay. digital sharing. Um, uh, when the apocalypse comes right. and, you know, the EMP wipes, up all, wipes off all our digital games, all of us are going to be back to playing with <laughs> Hazard. sticks little mm-hmm. rocks anyway. Nice. <laughs> D&D will survive. <laughs> <laughs> it's all on paper. Yeah. Stockpile your dice along with your cans. And the final one, which I know is a particular bugbear with with Alan and Chris. Pay your writers. Oh, yes. which at this point now. That's yes. Great. Here's here's my uh, entire mm-hmm. filibuster on that. Pay your fucking writers. If you don't have the monetary resources to pay your people a decent, like, fair rate at every level of whatever service you offer, whether that's print or digital or first time or reprints, etc., just stop. Just go somewhere else. And I don't know, like, do a video series where it's just you and a camera or something. Like, don't try to scam people out of their time and money and labor. Or at the very least, be upfront about what gets where. Like, I, I work mean, at a site yeah. that's, perfectly, that's free, yeah. but they say, right, nobody gets paid. Nobody. I mean, I, mean, I do the same. Yeah. I mean, they, I, I have issues actually with how Pop Matters comports itself, but that's this isn't the place for it, really. Yeah. But I mean, I uh, feel that way about what I do for Haywire. I feel about bad that we don't pay. Yeah, but but Haywire doesn't make any money. Meaning, no, I don't make any money. This, and I try this, to pay people the, in my labor. You know. I mean, there is a place for completely volunteer operations like that. Like if it's like a mutual understanding that like no one is getting a paycheck from this. Yeah. Then yeah, it's totally okay. And if you're, you know, both sides of whatever equation are just like we are both doing this in order to get something out of it that is like basically on our own terms, that's totally fine. I mean, uh, independent film, independent music, a lot of those industries work the exact same way. Yeah. When you get up to the level where here I'm going to be like subtweeting like an entire website, running a Kickstarter <clears throat> for your magazine and you still haven't paid writers for, you know, pieces that they wrote for your older issues of said magazine, and you're still paying peanuts for your web edition, maybe you shouldn't be in the business that you're in. But do you think, um, like, I don't know if you all saw Stu's piece in Unwinnable about it. Like, I don't, I want to believe because I want to be an optimistic sort of pup that, like, nobody's, it's not malice on anybody's part, but maybe it is. I like, think it might be malice on this particular uh, publication's part. Well, did you see their um, their Reddit AMA thing? I did, and I noticed how they specifically didn't answer any of the repeated yeah. questions that people had with regards to fair yeah. rates for writers. I mean, the, you know, the the online ecosystem is busted. I think and it is fucked. But like, all right, but you family can't, friendly. But you can't respond to oh the the e- online ecosystem is bust. Let's get seventy thousand in crowdfunding money mm. to go and do this other thing. So that's just like saying, I mean, like the left hand is busted. Let's do something with the right hand. Uh, and unless right. you're talking about masturbation, then <laughs> that seems like a pretty poor business practice. <laughs> I want yeah, it's, I want to believe everybody wants to do their best and. 
I don't actually believe that, but I want to so badly. <laughs> I mean, I, I can totally understand being in a position in a company where you think, well, I guess this was already monetized in its original incarnation, you know, something that I requested from a personal site, etc., that I don't have to worry about it. And I can understand drinking that Kool-Aid to the extent that, yes, you believe that what you're doing is moral and right and fair. But, I mean, speaking as someone who up until recently you know, relied on Patreon funds to make ends meet every month. I'm a bit incensed at the idea that these big websites can go and have like these big, you know, pie, like in the sky aspirations for things like print magazines when they're still paying their web writers 20 bucks a pop. Yeah. I mean, something that I, I, I would say, I was just going to say, Jonah, do you want to hear my long extended rant on this? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, Go ahead. Are you just waiting yeah. for it to round off? I'm sure the we all have them. Yeah. Um, so, as everybody knows, I run my own independent magazine. I've been doing so for the past three years, and it has not been easy by any stretch of the imagination. It has been very frustrating. Um, when we did a podcast last year, I was at, after a long period of honestly wanting to pack it in because we weren't making much traction. Since then, we got a really good new managing editor. Hi, Lindsay. And Yay. we started a Patreon campaign. And we've done a bit better off that. But we make about... So it's around $300 for every issue. So... Um, and out of that, it is about... It's perhaps about 50 to 60% of that money goes directly to our contributors. Um, and we pay our contributors more than any of the editors get. And so we obviously run it quite lean. It's digital... We take what costs we need, but we're not there to to make a profit. And I know that if we did a Kickstarter and we got $77,000, that somewhere between about fifty-five dollars and $60,000 of that would go directly towards contributors based on our current model. So I think it is not only ethically wrong, but incredibly frustrating that although there's an acknowledgement that, you know, we're all saying, pay your fucking writers, yeah. But these sites continue to exist, and, and places continue to exist that don't pay people good wages, and it's really bad. It's really bad that um, you've got a company like Killscreen, who we haven't mentioned by name, but I'm going to because it's obvious. We've got, you've got a company like Killscreen that is paying people $20 online, although if you look at the, the spreadsheet of all the breakdowns, I think the, the lowest cost is zero. What a surprise. And they are, you know, they're not some young upstarts. This is a company that's run for years, that have published several print magazines, and run a, a series of what I assume are relatively successful conferences. Um, and which are I quite don't expensive, think, yeah, yeah, which are probably quite expensive for everybody yeah, to attend. Quite a bit. Uh, and these are guys here, you know, who who like to call themselves the best magazine in the world. And I think the best magazine in the world would would pay all of the people that work for it. I don't know if that is a particularly controversial stance, but um, it is not the kind of magazine I would want to run. Um, and it is, yeah, it's, 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 really, it's really frustrating every month that goes by, uh, and we kind of scrape by, um, whereas these posers make loads and loads of money for doing something I think is really ethically dubious. So that's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> Feel free to produce a counter-argument. Just uh, stretching my hand all the way across the continental United States in the Atlantic Ocean to give you a high five, Alex. <laughs> Yay. Yay. I could feel Very that. Nice. Feel that. Yes. 
Yeah, that's hard. I mean, it's just, it's just bullshit. It's just bullshit. There's there's so many good like we we did a, a Haywire special through five out of ten. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really good. Um, I did the entire layout for it in about three days, and it nearly broke me. But it was really it was worth it. Um, and it didn't do very well at all. Um, mm-hmm. And by and large, people do not want to pay for this kind of content. And this is for the sure. this, this is the fundamental problem. If um, all the stuff in 5 out of 10 was available free through the website. I have no doubt that it would be really popular and people would think it was excellent. But that's not, that's just not the way we want to do things because we know if we went to a free ad-supported model, we wouldn't make any money at all and people would be writing for free and that's just not not cool. Part of me thinks that it is, it's unsolvable and I know that Stuart Unwinnable has put a lot of his own personal money into yeah. Unwinnable and making it work. It's not, as far as I know, it's not economically sustainable. By the way, yeah. I've just used my subscription to Unwinnable. Hey. Well, um, but I, I think unless you are a big player, I mean, if you look at a company like, so there's a, there's a paste piece that Eric will hopefully include in the show notes um, that looks at the way in which these companies work, like IGN and GameSpot um, and Polygon and Vox, and apart from the fact that you know Polygon's different because it's venture capital funded, um, and then once they had to start uh, actually making money, that's why they got rid of Russ Pitts, who was the guy that did the best work on that site. You'll notice that a lot of those places don't cover video games exclusively anymore. If you go to Polygon, there's probably about 30 pieces about Star Wars and Transformers and Ghostbusters and pop cultural stuff. Um, and that's because the money is just not there in dedicated games publishing in the same way. They well, they have to capture as big a, of a market as they can. IGN's another one that is, although on the face of it, a games magazine, it is basically sort of young male-oriented, slightly nerdy pop culture. Well, it has been for over a decade. Yeah, but it, but even on like the IGN.com homepage, I think that's a lot more explicit in the past couple of years. Well, I have two issues, and then we're going to move on to the, the last section, is that, first, that's not entirely a bad thing, because plenty of arguments have come on that by ghettoizing games into their own individual websites rather than as, as one spoke on a larger entertainment hub ghettoizes it and, and segregates it from what could actually be a conversation with a lot wider culture. and sec- So I don't actually think that's all in all a bad thing. I would agree. I mean, no, no, it's not, all right. it's, not, it's, not, it's not bad. I just I was just saying that as more it's it's interesting. It's it's indicative of what the current climate's like. It wasn't to say that it's bad to Polygon or writing about movies or anything like that. And the second point I was going to point is is that it just shows how small games dedicated publishing is and that has to be grown because you say it's not sustainable and it isn't sustainable at the current level and I don't know how to increase that level because Unwinnable could Stu Horvath would be so much better off and Unwinnable in general is if he could get what a couple of hundred few more subscribers hundred we're talking like three digits Mm -hmm. and it would all and it would be perfectly sustainable I assume that the number would be even less for 5 out of 10 it would be it'd be bigger than 60 which is the current number but um, easier said than done well, I'm not part of the subscribe because I buy them individually. But that's all right. That's all right. You're 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 good for it. <laughs> <laughs> you you because uh, I I get paid irregularly. All right, now we're gonna close out because those are all a lot or not all. Those are a lot of the major topics that were com- that were covered in 2015 and cropped up. Now it's time to talk with ourselves. So we're gonna so like last year we're gonna do three games or game related things we liked from twenty fifteen 
and then one, and then we're going to go back around in the circle. One thing from 2015 that had absolutely nothing to do with games because being more well-rounded is never a bad thing. Chris, let's start with you. Okay, so my three games are game-related things from 2015. Uh, I would first have to name Undertale, uh, and like <laughs> you're, a, you're a shill for this. Yeah, I'm a skeleton shill. <laughs> Uh, never forgive me. You have a skeleton inside you. <gasps> I think maybe humans have evolved from skeletons. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. I'm being a jerk. So, uh, I mean, okay. So, here's the thing. I don't feel that Undertale is the best game ever made. I don't feel it has to be the best game ever made. I think that it's just a fun, cute game. With characters that are memorable and that I want to schmooch a lot. So there we go. On the one, the one downside: no animorph references. Ah, you're right. <laughs> that is one thing that To the Moon had going for it: lots of animorph references. So okay, so we've got Undertale. What's another one that I played this year? Love Live, I guess. Love Live is not new. Uh, it's been out for a few years in Japan, and I believe it's been out in an English edition for at least a year. Uh, it's just a rhythm game played on your phone with nine fictional girls, sort of like if gorillas were a J-pop group. Okay. Yeah, so it's just like these, you know, these nine fictional Japanese schoolgirls with like high-pitched voices who sing pop idol songs, and you play a little rhythm thing on your phone. It's terrible. But it's addictive. So that is a thing that I've sunk, according to the game, um, 108 levels into so far. So whether or not it's actually critically laudable in any respect, it is certainly just, it's a huge time sink uh, and pretty addictive for all that. And then last, but certainly not least, I would have to cite, okay, let me look at my notes because I've just completely forgotten what I was going to say here. Ah, yes. Fallout New Vegas. Not four. <laughs> hey, nice. Not, not four, but after I finally dis- discovered that after putting 110 hours into Fallout 4, I had locked myself out of any of the endgame content because I had pissed off the Institute too soon, I decided to go and play New Vegas instead, and I'm having lots of fun with it. I just finished up the Old World Blues DLC, which is possibly one of my favorite bits of game writing ever. So if you have not yet, for whatever reason, played uh, Fallout New Vegas, I would highly recommend you do so. Yeah, Riley, get one. I've been trying to play it. (laughs) I've got it. I keep starting and stopping. All right, so uh, Popcorn Alan. Oh, we go, are we going to do the, the things we like that have nothing to do with games after we do all the games? Yes. Okay, so three games I liked in 2015. The first was Metal Gear Solid. <laughs> which, and, I mean, I've got some notes. I'm not going to regurgitate those. You can look up Johnny Collins' My Favorite Game podcast. It'll be up in a couple of weeks. Um, but I have not played as many old games as I would like. This year I have completed three Metroid games. I completed Ocarina of Time for the first time. I haven't played Undertale, but I suspect Undertale is probably better. Um, I've played Link Between Worlds. I replayed the first two Max Payne games. I'm hoping to play the third over Christmas. I'm currently working through Wind Waker, and I loved Metal Gear Solid. I think it holds up 
so well. It is really funny, it's really hokey, and, and I like that it's not very sophisticated because I find that more enjoyable. And I think that for me, I'm always trying to broaden my palette a bit. I'm not really interested in games that are out now. I don't have a PS4 or an Xbox One. Got the Wii U, though. Hey! Mm. Um, but I, I'm really interested in playing those parts of my history. Like, one of the games I really, really want to play is Final Fantasy twelve. I've never had time to play it. I, I've played a bit of Final Fantasy but I really, really, but I really, really want to play twelve. Those are those are the kind of games I'm interested in playing. Are things like uh, Snake Eater, um, those, those kind of things. So I am looking forward to playing the rest of the Metal Gear Saga in 2016. Well, maybe not four because I've already completed it. And then I finally get to play Revengeance, which is basically Bayonetta with Metal Gear characters. Um, <laughs> so two games I liked that actually came out in 2015. Uh, the first was Her Story, which is the um, Sam Barlow game. Um, it's a bit like Night Trap brought into the modern day. What I like about her story is it does interesting things with narrative and it brings a new twist in that old interactive movie genre that nobody thought could ever be good. But I also really like about it is that anybody can play it who knows how to Google things. And I think that's really cool is like we talk a lot about making games more accessible, more approachable to people. Um, but her story is a game that anybody who knows how to use a computer basically can play and I think that's I think that's really cool and it's a really it's just a really good game it's a really good game third game is Downwell which is an iOS um, sort of kind of a roguelike platformer thing um, published by Devolver Digital and it's basically Spelunky meets Sonic the Hedgehog and if you're thinking that sounds like the best game Alan's ever played you're not wrong you're not wrong <laughs> You can get it for Steam, or you can get it for iOS. I'm not sure if it's on Android, um, but it is... Not yet. Not yet. But it is really fun, really clever, and really addictive. Um, the only thing I would say to you if you're playing it for the first time is that the trick is to not actually shoot things with your gun bits. The trick is to jump on things and bounce and create combos. Um, and once you start getting the hang of that mechanism, um, your toilet trips are going to get a lot longer. <laughs> so those would be those would be my top three of the year. Riley, um, I was also going to say Downwell, yes. <laughs> so that was a good that was a good segue. <clears throat> Something I've found, I guess, this year is the first year that I've started, um, I guess, making a solid go at freelance games writing and making my money in games. And so, the the great irony I found when I talked to people about being an entertainment journalist is they're like, oh, I bet you get to play video games all the time. And I'm like, never. And so I've developed a real fondness for roguelikes because they're very short. And so I can be like, oh, I can play a bit of Downwell and then get back to work. Um, and so to me, I guess Downwell represents, you know, things like Spelunky or Nuclear Throne, I guess, maybe. Or just things that things that are short but engaging as opposed to these massive games that I know I'm never going to have time for. Um and so I've really enjoyed Downwell. Second thing I had, I don't know if it counts because it's still in early access, but I've I've been loving The Long Dark. I feel like I keep comparing lots of things to The Long Dark, and it's one of those games that's been in early access for a long time, but every time I think they update it, it gets better in these really exciting ways. And it's um it's a survival game which I which I tend to like oddly because I actually hate I hate actual surviving, like in, <laughs> in real yeah, life. Like, or in video as a game. general thing, I as hate a general surviving. thing, yeah, like eating. Every time I eat as like me myself, I'm angry. Like every time my body is hungry, I'm 
furious. Um, but in survival games, I love it. I, and I feel like I'm feeding my little person, you know? And so I, I have this bizarre relationship to survival games um, that I could probably write a whole essay about. But um, I've just loved every, I think, every change to the long dark has balanced it better and more interestingly. And it's, I've just been loving how that game is developing. Um, and... To be a bit maudlin, I guess, the third thing I'd say is one of one of my favorite things about games this year has been going to game stuff and meeting people and, and meeting all of you guys. Um, I think every every time I go to a games event, I, or I have this same thing in my head where I'm like, oh, you're not going to know anything. You know, you've never played Metal Gear. Everyone's going to think you're a jerk. Um, and, I, and I always come out of everything just with like a gazillion new friends. And a million new ideas, and I've even when it's hard to be in games. Um, every time I go to something or meet new people, it's always really great. And uh, yeah, it's been one of my favorite things this year is, is making new friends. It's not a, that's very nice, but that's n- not a game. According <laughs> <laughs> to Undertale, it is. Okay, yes, exactly. Okay, so Undertale. There, fine. Right. <laughs> yeah, Undertale Indicate sure. Edition. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> I guess that's not the game. I kind of force Chris to play the non-game, game-related thing, mainly because I don't want to list games here. <laughs> well, you have to, because you're up. Yeah. Yep, I know. So the first thing I'm going to do is mention the Minisodes, a creation that I added to the podcast this year, and I am so glad I did, because they are probably my favorite thing that I got to do in games-related thing this year. I get... They're, they're a hell to schedule, but because I choose a different co-host for each time, and i got to find three new games that no one is talking about, as well as my co-host who finds three new games that no one is talking about, or three games in general, and we just get to talk about why they're worth talking about and hope that someone decides, you know what, they're right. I should write about this, and then we get to feature it, and everyone's happy. Yay! In fact, I've been taking credit for any piece on any of the games we've mentioned on the podcast, getting written, whether it's true or not. I've also heard some and, praise for the length of it. Like, I think that, like, the 30 <laughs> minutes, like, to 45 minutes, like, is a sweet zone sort of thing that we should be aiming toward more. This is not actually me trying to, like, passive-aggressively oh, like, yeah. things up here, but I think <laughs> that in general, a lot of people are responding well to the shorter length of the mini-zodes. So, good I on know. you. And the second thing is is the main podcast, specifically the shooter episode, because while I didn't get everyone I asked because there were scheduling conflicts, there were email problems, and I think in one case, and one person didn't, I think may have just put it in the spam folder because who the hell am I? But I, I, I not only did I talk to the two to the two editors, uh, Patrick and Reed, I talked to as many of the writers I could for a quick for a four-question just collage. I asked the question, and then I just machine-gunned the answers in afterwards, and it was, it was so fun to edit. And, it was, and apparently so many people liked the effect that it created afterwards. So I created something video game-related, and I really liked how it came out. Kind of like that uh, last time on The Talking Dead I did a few years ago for the podcast. That was really good. Bravo. <laughs> If only we and could do third, something like that this year. Yeah, but you wanted to keep it short, not seven parts. Yeah, but can we at least like, have like, the Undertale stinger, like, mom, <laughs> for introducing this? 
And the third thing, okay, it's a video game because uh, Tales from the Borderlands actually hmm. made me laugh. And, like, it's been kind of hard to get excited this year for one reason and another, but most of it's personal. But I actually like that game. I really like that game. I laughed pretty much all the way through the five Telltale episodes right there. And it's Borderlands, which I didn't think could happen, but it worked. Yeah, I've heard a lot, I've heard a lot of good things about that. Um, and people have even said, if you don't like Borderlands, I think that's pretty reasonable because I don't like Borderlands. Um, that that Tales from the Borderlands is very much worth playing. I know uh, oh, JV has been talking yeah. it up over at Paste. Yeah, uh, I fall asleep while playing Borderlands. Yeah. It's actually it's actually kind of funny. I have a friend on the couch. We played all the way through Borderlands two to the end. I would routinely fall asleep and wake up an hour later in a completely different part of the map. Still shooting bad guys. <laughs> I think the fact that a that was possible and b that's the response I got to this game says something. Says all you yeah. need to know about my opinion of those games. Tales from the Borderlands. I was glued to the screen. I laughed all the way through, and I think it was creatively a grand exercise in something Telltale needed to do. It flexed their muscles to do things with their own formula that they needed to do. It it's just great in every. Because they changed things up, they tried new experiments in how they could frame things, how they can get information and story points across, and it's just fun as hell. So yeah, there's my uh, championing of a game. For, just to mix it up. Yes, instead of podcast stuff that I managed to create. Anyway, now what, Chris, have you done this year that is not related to games? So one thing that I've gotten into this year is uh, collecting tarot card decks. How fun. Uh, so I've always had, I guess, like a little lingering interest in them. I dabbled in Wicca when I was a teenager, and you know now I'm just sort of like, nah, I can't really believe in any gods, far less a bunch of them. But uh, I've discovered that there are a lot of really cool sort of like bespoke tarot decks that are being put out by little artists and collections of artists. So, uh, Yul Aramchek, who is known on Twitter as the Patanoic, uh, put out a really awesome deck of uh, major arcana cards, basically for the information age. So, instead of like the typical like the magician, the fool, etc., it has names like the atomic bomb or uh, the bureaucracy and things like that. And the cards are just gorgeously rendered. Uh, and super creepy. And uh, also, Welcome to Night Vale, which is a podcast I've been listening to for a while, put out their own uh, a tarot deck recently oh, with both a major and minor arcana. And every single one of the cards is illustrated with a unique, unique design. And so it's been just absolutely fascinating going through every single card. And I don't play with tarot cards very much. I mean, I don't do any sort of divination thing but I just consider them to be just, like, interesting sort of, like, collections of art. Uh, and between those two, and, all right, so this one isn't technically a tarot deck. It's the uh, the set of Clow cards from Cardcaptor Sakura. I found a deck of those recently, so I picked those up as well. So I just, uh, I just like collecting cards with cool pictures, I guess, that are vaguely arcane and magic-looking. Is that technically in some way a game? No. no. Uh, well, it's <laughs> fine. Tarot started as a game. Yeah. 
but yeah, I don't. Exactly. That's where I we get our present fifty-two them. card decks yeah. from. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, but no, it's an art object. Yeah. You collect art objects. I guess I do. Alan. Oh, uh, okay. Well, I've been seeing a nice new girl. That's probably the best uh-huh. thing that happened to me in 2015. That had nothing. Oh. Well, that had absolutely nothing to do with games. Well, she does play games, um, but that oh. seems a bit of a twee thing to say. Uh, <laughs> so. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this year I've not done that much games writing. I've been focusing on other stuff, like doing a lot of short story and fiction writing. One thing that's really good, and I can also plug it, which, as everybody knows, is my favorite thing, is I've been doing a new um, heavy metal podcast called Cast Iron. Um, so um, in every episode, uh, me and my friend Lewis Clark take a classic metal album and sort of dissect it track by track. Um, and most of the podcasts I've done tend to be people that I really strongly agree with, like whenever we're doing the split-screen podcast, Craig and I are often on the same page. But what I like about Cast Iron is that Lewis and I often disagree, and it, it leads to some really funny discussions, and we have a really good laugh, and I think it's really helped me appreciate the music I listen to a lot better as well. So um, it's new. We've done about uh, five or six episodes. The latest one is on Rammstein. Um, so that was good, because I, I, I did the show notes in German, which took me a lot longer than I'm proud to admit. Um, but yeah, you should check that out. I think we're on Twitter. I think it's at Cast Iron Show. Um, but you can look for Cast Iron on iTunes, and you can find it. You can also find a podcast that's called Iron Cast that came out about three or four months after we spent ages thinking of our name. I was not pleased. I was not a happy chap. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you should check it out. Give us a review on iTunes, all that shit. I think it's pretty cool. I mean, I like it too. Even if you don't like metal, you might be surprised. Riley. Uh, it's a really tough question. I feel like almost everything I've done this year is games or work, which is games or everything else. Uh, I got a really great tattoo this year, I guess. I am super fascinated by the history of um, polar exploration. And so I got this tattoo this year of sled dogs watching Shackleton's Endurance sink. Based on a, a photograph that they found recently um, from the Endurance. And uh, I'm bummed that it's on my back because I've run out of visible tattoo space. So most people can't see it. But um, I guess that's... you got to get one of those like strapped backless yeah, t-shirts. I do spend a lot of time fiddling with my undershirts trying to decide. Like, like I feel like it'll maybe encourage me to try to date more because I, I think somebody should have to see the tattoo. <laughs> um, look at my back. Look at my back. Yeah, what? look. No, you should see it. That's great. How do you know that it's actually there, if it's on your back? I forget quite a bit, actually. It's a lot of uh, trust in the tattoo I'd catch a glimpse of it like, in a mirror and be like, oh, what's that? <laughs> what the hell's that in my back? Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> ink that I got there. But that seems yeah. like a really a really sad non-games thing to say. Um, all I do is work. <laughs> I, haven't, I have no outside interests besides uh, work. I mean, say a little bit more about your interest in uh, Arctic expeditions. Um, I, I am, yeah, I'm just super fascinated by the history of polar exploration and more of the Arctic than the Antarctic, I'd say, and just what it means that we go there, the wacky histories. Somebody, a friend of mine who works in used books recently bought me the expedition journals of Alicia Kent Kane, who was married to um, one of the Fox sisters who founded spiritualism in America in the 1800s. And I just think it's crazy how people, it's, it's interesting how people try to go to wacky places and have wacky ideas about it and the way the history of how polar exploration changed along with the history of so many other things, like it's super tied up in the history of newspapers and how journalism developed. Um, because like 
when the Franklin expedition sank, they would send, they would sort of make up reasons to go look for it so that papers could make money and stuff. It's fascinating. I could note out about it forever. Um, polar exploration, I guess, is the, the non-games thing I'm interested in. So right you're here. like downplaying this as like having the, like the least interesting thing to talk about, but like that's the most amazing, most fascinating thing that anyone has said so far in this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> and going to continue to say in this podcast. Yeah. So yeah, I guess that's interesting. No, it's super cool. It is super cool. <laughs> and I'm gonna write you tattoo, and you should date me, listeners. <laughs> See my tattoo. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> it's crass. Well, Eric, it's down to you. Uh, the the thing is, is like all my non-game interests are really just continuations of interests I've always had. Like I've I've can. I guess you could say I've like doubled because I like sort of pulled back from games in the second half of this year that I've like doubled down on those interests. Like I've I've continued my self education on art and classic cinema. I've continued trying to read fiction, and I've got a pile of books that I'm planning to get through. Hopefully, after all this end of year stuff is done, I'll have some time to actually do so. And I've continued from last year's non-game thing that uh, to read Harry Potter fan fiction for no apparent reason. <laughs> so it's really just a continuation of the interests I've already had. What's the best classic movie you've watched this year? You're not going to ask about the Harry Potter the fan, fan fiction, fiction yeah. really? No, I'm not <laughs> deliberately asking a big classic movie. <laughs> Harry Potter fan fiction author of 2015. I'd actually say it's that that I've seen this year would probably be the Indian film from the 1950s called The Big City. Okay. I wish I could remember the filmmakers because he's super famous in India off the top of my head, but I'd have to actually look it up. In fact, I will do that because it's, he's, I deserve to give him a name. Or rather, I think he deserves you to give him. To have his name mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sajit, Sajit Ray. Oh, yes. Uh, yes, I uh, studied his films a bit in college. Well, not college, university, grad school. And, uh, oh, yeah, uh, what is it called? Criterion Collection finally managed to get prints of, like, his older films and clean them up and release them because they were pre- previously unavailable due to a number of reasons. And they added that to the collection, but I hadn't, haven't actually seen his uh, Abu trilogy, which they just added. Uh, but The Big City was absolutely brilliant. So the Big City's not part of the Apu trilogy, though. It's different. Isn't it? No, it is not. It's a it's a it's a standalone film. The only Apu trilogy movies have the word Apu somewhere in the title. Uh, no, but their character is Apu. That's why oh, they're called. Okay, I was thinking I'd just ask a really stupid question. It's like you know, is uh, is the Big City a Harry Potter movie? No, they all begin with Harry Potter. <laughs> 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 that is how you know them. Uh, Apparently, there was a question Riley wanted to ask me about my interests. Oh, it was about the best Harry Potter fan fiction of 2015. I don't know about 2015, but I'll say this. Right that there, the are some, there are some fan fictions that are written that surpass some of the, like, the award winners, award winners of, like, published books. Yeah, definitely. Just by virtue, because, especially since Harry Potter has ended, it's like half interest in the fiction, half anthropological exploration of a subcommunity is that I've noticed that now that it's ended and we're several years past, that you, you're getting to the point where people stop wanting to fix the problems and are stop, stop trying to do wish fulfillment, and now you're getting the people exploring the what-if scenarios and possibilities of just, here are the building blocks. Now, what can I do that 
to the point where they're even le- where some of them have even left the original context behind and just take the building blocks in to do some very fascinating, very thematically rich things, mm. if not always spelled correctly. <laughs> but that's the danger of all internet writing. Mm. Mm. But yeah, that's where that's where I am at. Just a just a hovering overhead, nothing new, just more. All right, and one of us has a cat that's finally awake. Yeah, she just woke up. <laughs> well, that seems like a a good place to end things on because once we have hungry cats in here, like there's no getting anything done. <laughs> oh no, I, I put the food down three hours ago. It's still there, waiting to be eaten. So, Chris, what exactly? does Critical Distance have for our audience? Oh, dear. Uh, Well, if you enjoyed this podcast and the other podcasts that we run every month and you uh, want to hear more like them, we'd encourage you to pledge to our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash critical... Sorry. Slash crit distance. No, itical. (laughs) If you like these, if you like our roundups, if you like our special features... For instance, our critical compilations and spotlights. We do depend on uh, your support. If Patreon is not up your alley, we also take one-time contributions through PayPal, and we are also on Recurrency. As far as what you can expect in 2016, as we mentioned sort of at the head of this podcast, I am retiring from the position of senior curator at the start of 2016. We have already locked in on a uh, replacement for me, We'll be announcing them within the next few weeks. I will not be leaving Critical Distance entirely. I'll be moving over to the advisory board where I will be joining uh, the other members of our advisory team, Ellen here, as well as our founder, Ben Abraham, and our deputy curator, Zach Alexander, to continue working on our print anthologies, which will be collecting writing from the inception of our site in 2009 up to the present to sort of uh, the idea of what there has always been to sort of like create something that will survive the inevitable apocalypse so that, you know, if, you know, <laughs> Furiosa and the war boys ever want to have like a heated discussion on ludonarrative dissonance, they will have something that survives. The atomic <laughs> After the weekly D and D session, critical distance. Yeah. So that's, so that's the future of critical distance. There is do. Mad Max entirely. Uh, and, and our new senior curator, which I'll, we'll, we'll be able to uh, introduce to you very soon. It is someone most of our, our listeners are already familiar with, and I think you'll be very happy with our choice. And this is where I get to beg you, because we are on iTunes, and we are in sorely needing of reviews. So if you enjoyed what you heard, or if you didn't enjoy, because I'm desperate for anything at this point, please go to iTunes and leave a review. I don't really care about the star rating at this point. No, but really, so, nice things, because, you know... We got one, and I really liked it. Oh, it made good. me happy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes, we are so, on iTunes, so there was, there's a thing. So, I say, as the host of the podcast, so long 2015, and so long to everyone listening. I thank, thank you, Chris, thank you, Alan, thank you, Riley, for coming on and joining me in this roundup of 2015. It's been a blast. Thank you all for listening. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, thanks. Bye. And have a happy Christmas, a happy Hanukkah, happy Kwanzaa, happy Festivus, happy New Year, and I'm sure there's half a dozen other holidays I forgot to mention. Bye-bye. See you in 2016.